Book Two, Chapter Two, Part One of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Symposium Gloria had lulled Anthony's mind to sleep. She, who seemed of all women the wisest and the finest, hung like a brilliant curtain across his doorways, shutting out the light of the sun. In those first years what he believed bore invariably the stamp of Gloria. He saw the sun always through the pattern of the curtain. It was a sort of lassitude that brought them back to Marietta for another summer. Through a golden, enervating spring they had loitered, restive and lazily extravagant, along the California coast, joining other parties intermittently and drifting from Pasadena to Coronado, from Coronado to Santa Barbara, with no purpose more apparent than Gloria's desire to dance by different music, or catch some infinitesimal variant among the changing colors of the sea. Out of the Pacific there rose to greet them savage rocklands and equally barbaric hostelries, built that at tea-time one might drowse into a languid wicker bazaar glorified by the polo costumes of Southampton and Lake Forest and Newport and Palm Beach. And, as the waves met and splashed and glittered in the most placid of the bays, so they joined this group and that, and with them shifted stations, murmuring ever of those strange, unsubstantial gaieties in wait just over the next green and fruitful valley. A simple healthy leisure class it was, the best of the men not unpleasantly undergraduate, they seemed to be on a perpetual candidate's list for some etherealized porcelain or skull and bones, extended out indefinitely into the world. The women, of more than average beauty, fragilely athletic, somewhat idiotic as hostesses, but charming and infinitely decorative as guests. Sedately and gracefully they danced the steps of their selection in the balmy tea-hours, accomplishing with a certain dignity the movement so horribly burlesqued by clerk and chorus-girl the country over. It seemed ironic that in this lone and discredited offspring of the arts Americans should excel unquestionably. Having danced and splashed through a lavish spring, Anthony and Gloria found that they had spent too much money, and for this must go into retirement for a certain period. There was Anthony's work, they said. Almost before they knew it, they were back in the gray house, more aware now that other lovers had slept there, other names had been called over the banisters, other couples had sat upon the porch steps watching the gray-green fields and the black bulk of woods beyond. It was the same Anthony, more restless, inclined to quicken only under the stimulus of several highballs, faintly, almost imperceptibly, apathetic toward Gloria. But Gloria, she would be twenty-four in August, and was in an attractive but sincere panic about it. Six years to thirty! Had she been less in love with Anthony, her sense of the flight of time would have expressed itself in a reawakened interest in other men, in a deliberate intention of extracting a transient gleam of romance from every potential lover who glanced at her with lowered brows over a shining dinner-table. She said to Anthony one day, "'How I feel is that if I wanted anything, I'd take it. That's what I've always thought all my life. But it happens that I want you, and so I just haven't room for any other desires." They were bound eastward through a parched and lifeless Indiana, 
and she had looked up from one of her beloved moving-picture magazines to find a casual conversation suddenly turned grave. Anthony frowned out the car window. As the track crossed a country road, a farmer appeared momentarily in his wagon. He was chewing on a straw and was apparently the same farmer they had passed a dozen times before, sitting in silent and malignant symbolism. As Anthony turned to Gloria, his frown intensified. "'You worry me,' he objected. "'I can imagine wanting another woman under certain transitory circumstances, but I can't imagine taking her.' "'But I don't feel that way, Anthony. I can't be bothered resisting things I want. My way is not to want them, to want nobody but you.' "'Yet when I think that if you just happen to take a fancy to someone—oh, don't be an idiot!' she exclaimed. There'd be nothing casual about it, and I can't even imagine the possibility." This emphatically closed the conversation. Anthony's unfailing appreciation made her happier in his company than in anyone's else. She definitely enjoyed him, she loved him, so the summer began very much as had the one before. There was, however, one radical change in Menage. The icy-hearted Scandinavian, whose austere cooking and sardonic manner of waiting on table had so depressed Gloria, gave way to an exceedingly efficient Japanese whose name was Tanalahaka, but who confessed that he heeded any summons which included the dissyllable Tana. Tana was unusually small even for a Japanese, and displayed a somewhat naive conception of himself as a man of the world. On the day of his arrival from R. Guguminoki, Japanese Reliable Employment Agency, he called Anthony into his room to see the treasures of his trunk. These included a large collection of Japanese postcards, which he was all for explaining to his employer at once, individually and at great length. Among them were half a dozen of pornographic intent and plainly of American origin, though the makers had modestly omitted both their names and the form for mailing. He next brought out some of his own handiwork, a pair of American pants which he had made himself, and two suits of solid silk underwear. He informed Anthony confidentially as to the purpose for which these latter were reserved. The next exhibit was a rather good copy of an etching of Abraham Lincoln, to whose face he had given an unmistakable Japanese cast. Last came a flute. He had made it himself, but it was broken. He was going to fix it soon. After these polite formalities, which Anthony conjectured must be native to Japan, Tana delivered a long harangue in splintered English on the relation of master and servant, from which Anthony gathered that he had worked on large estates but had always quarreled with the other servants because they were not honest. They had a great time over the word honest, and in fact became rather irritated with each other because Anthony persisted stubbornly that Tana was trying to say hornets, and even went to the extent of buzzing in the manner of a bee and flapping his arms to imitate wings. After three-quarters of an hour Anthony was released with the warm assurance that they would have other nice chats in which Tana would tell how we do in my country. Such was Tana's garrulous premiere in the grey house, and he fulfilled its promise though he was conscientious and honourable, he was unquestionably a terrific bore. He seemed unable to control his tongue, 
sometimes continuing from paragraph to paragraph with a look akin to pain in his small brown eyes. Sunday and Monday afternoons he read the comic sections of the newspaper. One cartoon which contained a facetious Japanese butler diverted him enormously, though he claimed that the protagonist, who to Anthony appeared clearly oriental, had really an American face. The difficulty with the funny paper was that when aided by Anthony he had spelled out the last three pictures and assimilated their context with a concentration surely adequate for Kant's critique, he had entirely forgotten what the first pictures were about. In the middle of June Anthony and Gloria celebrated their first anniversary by having a date. Anthony knocked at the door and she ran to let him in. Then they sat together on the couch calling over those names they had made for each other, new combinations of endearments ages old. Yet to this date was appended no attenuated good night with its ecstasy of regret. Later in June horror leered out at Gloria, struck at her and frightened her bright soul back half a generation. Then slowly it faded out, faded back into that impenetrable darkness whence it had come, taking relentlessly its modicum of youth. With an infallible sense of the dramatic, it chose a little railroad station in a wretched village near Port Chester. The station platform lay all day bare as a prairie, exposed to the dusty yellow sun and to the glance of that most obnoxious type of countryman who lives near a metropolis and has attained its cheap smartness without its urbanity. A dozen of these yokels, red-eyed, cheerless as scarecrows, saw the incident. Dimly it passed across their confused and uncomprehending minds, taken at its broadest for a coarse joke, at its subtlest for a shame. Meanwhile there upon the platform a measure of brightness faded from the world. With Eric Merriam Anthony had been sitting over a decanter of scotch all the hot summer afternoon while Gloria and Constance Merriam swam and sunned themselves at the beach club, the latter under a striped parasol awning, Gloria stretched sensuously upon the soft hot sand, tanning her inevitable legs. Later they had all four played with inconsequential sandwiches. Then Gloria had risen, tapping Anthony's knee with her parasol to get his attention. "'We've got to go, dear.' "'Now?' He looked at her unwillingly. At that moment nothing seemed of more importance than to idle on that shady porch drinking mellowed scotch, while his host reminisced interminably on the by-play of some forgotten political campaign. "'We've really got to go,' repeated Gloria. "'We can get a taxi to the station. Come on, Anthony,' she commanded a bit more imperiously. "'Now see here,' Miriam, his yarn cut off, made conventional objections meanwhile provocatively filling his guest's glass with a highball that should have been sipped through ten minutes. But at Gloria's annoyed, we really must, Anthony drank it off, got to his feet and made an elaborate bow to his hostess. It seems we must, he said with little grace. In a minute he was following Gloria down a garden walk between tall rose-bushes, her parasol brushing gently the June-blooming leaves most inconsiderate, he thought, as they reached the road. He felt with injured naivete that Gloria should not have interrupted such innocent and harmless enjoyment. The whiskey had both soothed and clarified the restless things in his mind. 
it occurred to him that she had taken this same attitude several times before. Was he always to retreat from pleasant episodes at a touch of her parasol or a flicker of her eye? His unwillingness blurred to ill-will, which rose within him like a resistless bubble. He kept silent, perversely inhibiting a desire to reproach her. They found a taxi in front of the inn, rode silently to the little station. Then Anthony knew what he wanted, to assert his will against this cool and impervious girl, to obtain with one magnificent effort a mastery that seemed infinitely desirable. "'Let's go over to see the Barneses,' he said without looking at her. "'I don't feel like going home.' Mrs. Barnes, nay, Rachel Gerald, had a summer place several miles from Redgate. "'We went there day before yesterday,' she answered shortly. "'I'm sure they'd be glad to see us.' He felt that that was not a strong enough note, braced himself stubbornly, and added, "'I want to see the Barneses. I haven't any desire to go home.' "'Well, I haven't any desire to go to the Barneses.' Suddenly they stared at each other. "'Why, Anthony,' she said with annoyance, "'this is Sunday night, and they probably have guests for supper. Why should we go in at this hour?' "'Then why couldn't we have stayed at the Merriam's?' he burst out. "'Why go home when we were having a perfectly decent time? They asked us to supper.' "'They had to. Give me the money, and I'll get the railroad tickets.' "'I certainly will not. I'm in no humor for a ride in that damn hot train.' Gloria stamped her foot on the platform. "'Anthony, you act as if you're tight.' "'On the contrary. I'm perfectly sober.' but his voice had slipped into a husky key, and she knew with certainty that this was untrue. "'If you're sober, you'll give me the money for the tickets.' But it was too late to talk to him that way. In his mind was but one idea, that Gloria was being selfish, that she was always being selfish, and would continue to be unless here and now he asserted himself as her master. This was the occasion of all occasions since for a whim she had deprived him of a pleasure. His determination solidified, approached momentarily a dull and sullen hate. "'I won't go in the train,' he said, his voice trembling a little with anger. "'We're going to the Barneses.' "'I'm not,' she cried. "'If you go, I'm going home alone.' "'Go on, then.' Without a word she turned toward the ticket office. Simultaneously, he remembered that she had some money with her and this was not the sort of victory he wanted, the sort he must have. He took a step after her and seized her arm. "'See here,' he muttered, "'you're not going alone.' "'I certainly am. Why, Anthony!' This exclamation, as she tried to pull away from him, and he only tightened his grasp. He looked at her with narrowed and malicious eyes. Let go! Her cry had a quality of fierceness. If you have any decency, you'll let me go. Why? He knew why, but he took a confused and not quite confident pride in holding her there. I'm going home, do you understand? And you are going to let me go. No, I'm not. Her eyes were burning now. Are you going to make a scene here? I say you're not going. I'm tired of your eternal selfishness. 
I only want to go home." Two wrathful tears started from her eyes. "'This time you're going to do what I say.' Slowly her body straightened, her head went back in a gesture of infinite scorn. "'I hate you!' Her low words were expelled like venom through her clenched teeth. "'Oh, let me go! Oh, I hate you!' She tried to jerk herself away, but he only grasped the other arm. I hate you! I hate you!" At glorious fury his uncertainty returned, but he felt that now he had gone too far to give in. It seemed that he had always given in and that in her heart she had despised him for it. Ah, she might hate him now, but afterward she would admire him for his dominance. The approaching train gave out a premonitory siren that tumbled melodramatically toward them down the glistening blue tracks. Gloria tugged and strained to free herself, and words older than the book of Genesis came to her lips. "'Oh, you brute!' she sobbed. "'Oh, you brute! Oh, I hate you! Oh, you brute! Oh!' On the station platform other prospective passengers were beginning to turn and stare. The drone of the train was audible. It increased to a clamor. Gloria's efforts redoubled, then ceased altogether and she stood there trembling and hot-eyed at this helpless humiliation, as the engine roared and thundered into the station. Low, below the flood of steam and the grinding of the brakes, came her voice. "'Oh, if there was one man here you couldn't do this! You couldn't do this! You coward! You coward! Oh, you coward!' Anthony, silent, trembling himself, gripped her rigidly aware that faces, dozens of them, curiously unmoved, shadows of a dream, were regarding him. Then the bells distilled metallic crashes that were like physical pain, the smokestacks volleyed in slow acceleration at the sky, and in a moment of noise and gray gaseous turbulence the line of faces ran by, moved off, became indistinct, until suddenly there was only the sun slanting east across the tracks and a volume of sound decreasing far off like a train made out of tin thunder. He dropped her arms. He had won. Now, if he wished, he might laugh. The test was done, and he had sustained his will with violence. Let leniency walk in the wake of victory. "'We'll hire a car here and drive back to Marietta,' he said with fine reserve. For answer, Gloria seized his hand with both of hers, and, raising it to her mouth, bit deeply into his thumb. He scarcely noticed the pain. Seeing the blood spurt, he absent-mindedly drew out his handkerchief and wrapped the wound. That too was part of the triumph, he supposed. It was inevitable that defeat should thus be resented, and as such was beneath notice. She was sobbing, almost without tears, profoundly and bitterly. I won't go! I won't go! You can't make me go! You've... you've killed any love I ever had for you, and any respect. But all that's left in me would die before I'd move from this place. Oh, if I thought you'd lay your hands on me!" "'You're going with me,' he said brutally, "'if I have to carry you!' He turned, beckoned to a taxicab, told the driver to go to Marietta. The man dismounted and swung the door open. 
Anthony faced his wife and said between his clenched teeth, "'Will you get in, or will I put you in?' With a subdued cry of infinite pain and despair, she yielded herself up and got into the car. All the long ride, through the increasing dark of twilight, she sat huddled in her side of the car, her silence broken by an occasional dry and solitary sob. Anthony stared out the window, his mind working dully on the slowly changing significance of what had occurred. Something was wrong. That last cry of Gloria's had struck a chord which echoed posthumously and with incongruous disquiet in his heart. He must be right. Yet she seemed such a pathetic little thing now, broken and dispirited, humiliated beyond the measure of her lot to bear. The sleeves of her dress were torn, her parasol was gone, forgotten on the platform. It was a new costume, he remembered, and she had been so proud of it that very morning when they had left the house. He began wondering if anyone they knew had seen the incident. And persistently there recurred to him her cry, all that's left in me would die." This gave him a confused and increasing worry. It fitted so well with the Gloria who lay in the corner, no longer a proud Gloria, nor any Gloria he had known. He asked himself if it were possible. While he did not believe she would cease to love him, this, of course, was unthinkable, it was yet problematical whether Gloria, without her arrogance, her independence, her virginal confidence and courage, would be the girl of his glory, the radiant woman who was precious and charming because she was ineffably, triumphantly herself. He was very drunk even then, so drunk as not to realize his own drunkenness. When they reached the gray house he went to his own room, and, his mind still wrestling helplessly and somberly with what he had done, fell into a deep stupor on his bed. It was after one o'clock, and the hall seemed extraordinarily quiet, when Gloria, wide-eyed and sleepless, traversed it and pushed open the door of his room. He had been too befuddled to open the windows, and the air was stale and thick with whiskey. She stood for a moment by his bed, a slender, exquisitely graceful figure in her boyish silk pajamas. Then, with abandon, she flung herself upon him, half waking him in the frantic emotion of her embrace dropping her warm tears upon his throat. "'Oh, Anthony!' she cried passionately. "'Oh, my darling! You don't know what you did!' Yet in the morning, coming early into her room, he knelt down by her bed and cried like a little boy, as though it was his heart that had been broken. "'It seemed last night,' she said gravely, her fingers playing in his hair, that all the part of me you loved, the part that was worth knowing, all the pride and fire, was gone. I knew that what was left of me would always love you, but never in quite the same way." Nevertheless, she was aware even then that she would forget in time, and that it was the manner of life seldom to strike, but always to wear away. After that morning the incident was never mentioned and its deep wound healed with Anthony's hand, and if there was triumph some darker force than theirs possessed it, possessed the knowledge and the victory. Nietzschean Incident 
glorious independence, like all sincere and profound qualities, had begun unconsciously, but once brought to her attention by Anthony's fascinated discovery of it, it assumed more nearly the proportions of a formal code. From her conversation it might be assumed that all her energy and vitality went into a violent affirmation of the negative principle, never give a damn. Not for anything or anybody, she said, except myself, and by implication for Anthony. That's the rule of all life, and if it weren't, I'd be that way anyhow. Nobody'd do anything for me if it didn't gratify them too, and I'd do as little for them. She was on the front porch of the nicest lady in Marietta when she said this, and as she finished she gave a curious little cry and sank in a dead faint to the porch floor. The lady brought her to and drove her home in her car. It had occurred to the estimable Gloria that she was probably with child. She lay upon the long lounge downstairs. Day was slipping warmly out the window, touching the late roses on the porch pillars. "'All I think of ever is that I love you,' she wailed. "'I value my body because you think it's beautiful. And this body of mine, of yours, to have it grow ugly and shapeless? It's simply intolerable. Oh, Anthony, I'm not afraid of the pain." He consoled her desperately, but in vain. She continued, "'And then afterward I might have wide hips and be pale, with all my freshness gone and no radiance in my hair.' He paced the floor with his hands in his pockets, asking, "'Is it certain?' "'I don't know anything. I've always hated obstricts, or whatever you call them. I thought I'd have a child sometime, but not now." "'Well, for God's sake, don't lie there and go to pieces.' Her sobs lapsed. She drew down a merciful silence from the twilight which filled the room. "'Turn on the lights,' she pleaded. "'These days seem so short. June seemed to have longer days when I was a little girl.' The light snapped on and it was as though blue drapes of softest silk had been dropped behind the windows and the door. Her pallor, her immobility, without grief now or joy, awoke his sympathy. "'Do you want me to have it?' she asked listlessly. "'I'm indifferent. That is, I'm neutral. If you have it, I'll probably be glad. If you don't, well, that's all right, too.' "'I wish you'd make up your mind one way or the other.' Suppose you make up your mind." She looked at him contemptuously, scorning to answer. "'You think you've been singled out of all the women in the world for this crowning indignity.' "'What if I do?' she cried angrily. "'It isn't an indignity for them. It's their one excuse for living. It's the one thing they're good at. It is an indignity for me.' "'See here, Gloria, I'm with you whatever you do but for God's sake be a sport about it." "'Oh, don't fuss at me!' she wailed. They exchanged a mute look of no particular significance, but of much stress. Then Anthony took a book from the shelf and dropped into a chair. Half an hour later her voice came out of the intense stillness that pervaded the room and hung like incense on the air. "'I'll drive over and see Constance Merriam tomorrow.' and I'll go to Terrytown and see Grandpa." "'You see,' she added, 
It isn't that I'm afraid of this or anything else. I'm being true to me, you know." I know, he agreed. The Practical Men Adam Patch, in a pious rage against the Germans, subsisted on the war news. Pin maps plastered his walls. Atlases were piled deep on tables convenient to his hand together with photographic histories of the World War, official explain-alls, and the personal impressions of war correspondents and of privates X, Y, and Z. Several times during Anthony's visit, his grandfather's secretary, Edward Shuttleworth, the one-time accomplished gin physician of Pat's place in Hoboken, now shot with righteous indignation, would appear with an extra. The old man attacked each paper with untiring fury, tearing out those columns which appeared to him of sufficient pregnancy for preservation, and thrusting them into one of his already bulging files. "'Well, what have you been doing?' he asked Anthony blandly. "'Nothing? Well, I thought so. I've been intending to drive over and see you, all summer.' "'I've been writing. Don't you remember the essay I sent you, the one I sold to the Florentine last winter?' Essay? You never sent me any essay. Oh, yes, I did. We talked about it. Adam Patch shook his head mildly. Oh, no, you never sent me any essay. You may have thought you sent it, but it never reached me. Why, you read it, Grandpa, insisted Anthony, somewhat exasperated. You read it and disagreed with it. The old man suddenly remembered but this was made apparent only by a partial falling open of his mouth, displaying rows of gray gums. Eyeing Anthony with a green and ancient stare, he hesitated between confessing his error and covering it up. "'So you're writing,' he said quickly. "'Well, why don't you go over and write about these Germans? Write something real, something about what's going on, something people can read.' "'Anybody can't be a war correspondent.' objected Anthony. You have to have some newspaper willing to buy your stuff, and I can't spare the money to go over as a freelance." "'I'll send you over,' suggested his grandfather surprisingly. "'I'll get you over as an authorized correspondent of any newspaper you pick out.' Anthony recoiled from the idea. Almost simultaneously he bounded toward it. "'I don't know.' He would have to leave Gloria whose whole life yearned toward him and enfolded him. Gloria was in trouble. Oh, the thing wasn't feasible, yet he saw himself in khaki, leaning as all war correspondents lean upon a heavy stick, portfolio at shoulder, trying to look like an Englishman. "'I'd like to think it over,' he confessed. "'It's certainly very kind of you. I'll think it over and I'll let you know.' Thinking it over absorbed him on the journey to New York. He had had one of those sudden flashes of illumination vouchsafed to all men who are dominated by a strong and beloved woman, which showed them a world of harder men, more fiercely trained and grappling with the abstractions of thought and war. In that world the arms of Gloria would exist only as the hot embrace of a chance mistress, coolly sought and quickly forgotten. These unfamiliar phantoms were crowding closely about him when he boarded his train for Marietta in the Grand Central Station. The car was crowded. He secured the last vacant seat, and it was only after several minutes that he gave even a casual glance to the man beside him. 
When he did, he saw a heavy lay of jaw and nose, a curved chin and small, puffed-under eyes. In a moment he recognized Joseph Bleekman. Simultaneously they both half-rose, were half-embarrassed, and exchanged what amounted to a half-handshake. Then, as though to complete the matter, they both half-laughed. "'Well,' remarked Anthony, without inspiration, "'I haven't seen you for a long time.' Immediately he regretted his words, and started to add, "'I didn't know you lived out this way.' But Bleakman anticipated him by asking pleasantly, "'How's your wife?' "'She's very well. How've you been?' "'Excellent.' His tone amplified the grandeur of the word. It seemed to Anthony that during the last year Bleakman had grown tremendously in dignity. The boiled look was gone, he seemed done at last. In addition, he was no longer overdressed. The inappropriate facetiousness he had affected in ties had given way to a sturdy dark pattern, and his right hand, which had formerly displayed two heavy rings, was now innocent of ornament and even without the raw glow of a manicure. This dignity appeared also in his personality. The last aura of the successful travelling man had faded from him, that deliberate ingratiation of which the lowest form is the bawdy joke in the Pullman smoker. One imagined that, having been fawned upon financially, he had attained aloofness. Having been snubbed socially, he had acquired reticence. But whatever had given him weight instead of bulk, Anthony no longer felt a correct superiority in his presence. "'Do you remember Caramel, Richard Caramel? I believe you met him one night.' "'I remember. He was writing a book.' "'Well, he sold it to the movies. Then they had some scenario man named Jordan work on it. Well, Dick subscribes to a clipping bureau, and he's furious because about half the movie reviewers speak of the power and strength of William Jordan's demon lover.' didn't mention old Dick at all. You'd think this fellow Jordan had actually conceived and developed the thing." Bleakman nodded comprehensively. "'Most of the contracts state that the original writer's name goes into all the paid publicity. Is Caramel still writing?' "'Oh, yes. Writing hard. Short stories.' "'Well, that's fine. That's fine. You on this train often?' "'About once a week. We live in Marietta.' "'Is that so? Well, well. I live near Coscob myself. Bought a place there only recently. We're only five miles apart. You'll have to come and see us." Anthony was surprised at his own courtesy. I'm sure Gloria'd be delighted to see an old friend. Anybody tell you where the house is. It's our second season there. Thank you. Then, as though returning a complimentary politeness, how was your grandfather? He's been well. I had lunch with him today." "'A great character,' said Bleakman severely. "'A fine example of an American.'" End of Book Two, Chapter Two, Part One Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Two of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Triumph of Lethargy Anthony found his wife deep in the porch hammock, voluptuously engaged with a lemonade and a tomato sandwich, 
and carrying on an apparently cheery conversation with Tana upon one of Tana's complicated themes. In uh, my country, Anthony recognized his invariable preface, all time peoples eat rice because haven't got, cannot eat what no have got. Had his nationality not been desperately apparent, one would have thought he had acquired his knowledge of his native land from American primary school geographies. When the Oriental had been squelched and dismissed to the kitchen, Anthony turned questioningly to Gloria. "'It's all right,' she announced, smiling broadly. "'And it surprised me more than it does you.' "'There's no doubt. None. Couldn't be.' They rejoiced happily, gay again with reborn irresponsibility. Then he told her of his opportunity to go abroad, and that he was almost ashamed to reject it. "'What do you think? Just tell me frankly.' "'Why, Anthony!' Her eyes were startled. "'Do you want to go? Without me?' His face fell, yet he knew, with his wife's question, that it was too late. Her arms, sweet and strangling, were around him, for he had made all such choices back in that room in the plaza the year before. This was an anachronism from an age of such dreams. Gloria, he lied in a great burst of comprehension, of course I don't. I was thinking you might go as a nurse or something. He wondered dully if his grandfather would consider this. As she smiled, he realized again how beautiful she was, a gorgeous girl of miraculous freshness and sheerly honorable eyes. She embraced his suggestion with luxurious intensity, holding it aloft like a sun of her own making and basking in its beams. She strung together an amazing synopsis for an extravaganza of martial adventure. After supper, surfeited with the subject, she yawned. She wanted not to talk but only to read Penrod, stretched upon the lounge until at midnight she fell asleep. But Anthony, after he had carried her romantically up the stairs, stayed awake to brood upon the day, vaguely angry with her, vaguely dissatisfied. "'What am I going to do?' he began at breakfast. "'Here we've been married a year, and we've just worried around without even being efficient people of leisure.' "'Yes, you ought to do something,' she admitted, being in an agreeable and loquacious humor. This was not the first of these discussions, but, as they usually developed, Anthony in the role of protagonist, she had come to avoid them. It's not that I have any moral compunctions about work," he continued. But Grandpa may die tomorrow, and he may live for ten years. Meanwhile, we're living above our income, and all we've got to show for it is a farmer's car and a few clothes. We keep an apartment that we've only lived in three months, and a little old house way off in nowhere. We're frequently bored, and yet we won't make any effort to know anyone except the same crowd who drift around California all summer, wearing sport clothes and waiting for their families to die." "'How you've changed,' remarked Gloria. "'Once you told me you didn't see why an American couldn't loaf gracefully.' "'Well, damn it, I wasn't married. And the old mind was working at top speed and now it's going round and round like a cogwheel with nothing to catch it. 
as a matter of fact, I think that if I hadn't met you I would have done something. But you make leisure so subtly attractive. Oh, it's all my fault. I didn't mean that and you know I didn't. But here I'm almost twenty-seven and—oh! she interrupted in vexation, you make me tired, talking as though I were objecting or hindering you. I was just discussing it, Gloria. Can't I discuss—I should think you'd be strong enough to settle—something with you without—your own problems without coming to me. You talk a lot about going to work, I could use more money very easily, but I'm not complaining. Whether you work or not, I love you." Her last words were gentle as fine snow upon hard ground, but for the moment neither was attending to the other. They were each engaged in polishing and perfecting his own attitude. I have worked, some. This by Anthony was an imprudent bringing up of raw reserves. Gloria laughed, torn between delight and derision. She resented his sophistry as at the same time she admired his nonchalance. She would never blame him for being the ineffectual idler so long as he did it sincerely, from the attitude that nothing much was worth doing. Work, she scoffed. Oh, you sad bird! You bluffer! Work! That means a great arranging of the desk and the lights, a great sharpening of pencils, and Gloria, don't sing, and please keep that damned Tana away from me, and let me read you my opening sentence. And I won't be through for a long time, Gloria, so don't stay up for me. And a tremendous consumption of tea or coffee. And that's all. In just about an hour I hear the old pencil stop scratching and look over. You've got out a book and you're looking up something. Then you're reading. Then yawns, then bed, and a great tossing about because you're all full of caffeine and can't sleep. Two weeks later the whole performance over again. With much difficulty Anthony retained a scanty breech-cloud of dignity. Now that's a slight exaggeration. You know darn well I sold an essay to the Florentine, and it attracted a lot of attention considering the circulation of the Florentine. And what's more, Gloria, you know I sat up till five o'clock in the morning finishing it." She lapsed into silence, giving him rope. And if he had not hanged himself he had certainly come to the end of it. At least, he concluded feebly, I'm perfectly willing to be a war correspondent. But so was Gloria. They were both willing, anxious, they assured each other of it. The evening ended on a note of tremendous sentiment, the majesty of leisure, the ill-health of Adam Patch, love at any cost. "'Anthony!' she called over the banister one afternoon a week later. "'There's someone at the door!' Anthony who had been lolling in the hammock on the sun-speckled south porch, strolled around to the front of the house. A foreign car, large and impressive, crouched like an immense and saturnine bug at the foot of the path. A man in a soft pongee suit, with cap to match, hailed him. "'Hello, Patch. Ran over to call on you.' It was Bleakman. As always, infinitesimally improved, of subtler intonation of more convincing ease. "'I'm awfully glad you did.' Anthony raised his voice to a vine-covered window. "'Gloria! We've got a visitor!' "'I'm in the tub!' 
wailed Gloria politely. With a smile the two men acknowledged the triumph of her alibi. She'll be down. Come round here on the side porch. Like a drink? Gloria's always in the tub, good third of every day. Pity she doesn't live on the sound. Can't afford it. As coming from Adam Patch's grandson, Bleakman took this as a form of pleasantry. After fifteen minutes filled with estimable brilliancies, Gloria appeared, fresh and starched yellow, bringing atmosphere and an increase of vitality. "'I want to be a successful sensation in the movies,' she announced. "'I hear that Mary Pickford makes a million dollars annually.' "'You could, you know,' said Bleakman. "'I think you'd film very well.' Would you let me, Anthony, if I only play unsophisticated roles?" As the conversation continued in stilted commas, Anthony wondered that to him and Bleakman both this girl had once been the most stimulating, the most tonic personality they had ever known. And now the three sat like over-oiled machines, without conflict, without fear, without elation, heavily enameled little figures, secure beyond enjoyment, in a world where death and war, dull emotion and noble savagery were covering a continent with the smoke of terror. In a moment he would call Tana and they would pour into themselves a gay and delicate poison which would restore them momentarily to the pleasurable excitement of childhood, when every face in a crowd had carried its suggestion of splendid and significant transactions taking place somewhere to some magnificent and illimitable purpose. Life was no more than this summer afternoon, a faint wind stirring the lace collar of Gloria's dress, the slow baking drowsiness of the veranda. Intolerably unmoved they all seemed, removed from any romantic imminency of action. Even Gloria's beauty needed wild emotions, needed poignancy, needed death. "'Any day next week,' Bleakman was saying to Gloria. "'Here, take this card. What they do is to give you a test of about three hundred feet of film, and they can tell pretty accurately from that. How about Wednesday? Wednesday's fine. Just phone me and I'll go around with you." He was on his feet, shaking hands briskly. Then his car was a wraith of dust down the road. Anthony turned to his wife in bewilderment. "'Why, Gloria!' "'You don't mind if I have a trial, Anthony. Just a trial. I've got to go to town Wednesday anyhow." "'But it's so silly. You don't want to go into the movies, moon around a studio all day with a lot of cheap chorus people?' "'Lot of mooning around Mary Pickford does.' "'Everybody isn't a Mary Pickford.' "'Well, I can't see how you'd object to my trying.' "'I do, though. I hate actors.' "'Oh, you make me tired.' Do you imagine I have a very thrilling time dozing on this damn porch?" "'You wouldn't mind if you loved me.' "'Of course I love you,' she said impatiently, making out a quick case for herself. "'It's just because I do that I hate to see you go to pieces by just lying around and saying you ought to work. Perhaps if I did go into this for a while it'd stir you up so you'd do something.' It's just your craving for excitement, that's all it is." Maybe it is. It's a perfectly natural craving, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you one thing. 
If you go to the movies, I'm going to Europe." "'Well, go on then. I'm not stopping you.' To show she was not stopping him, she melted into melancholy tears. Together they marshaled the armies of sentiment—words, kisses, endearments, self-reproaches. They attained nothing. Inevitably they attained nothing. Finally, in a burst of gargantuan emotion, each of them sat down and wrote a letter. Anthony's was to his grandfather. Gloria's was to Joseph Bleakman. It was a triumph of lethargy. One day early in July, Anthony, returned from an afternoon in New York, called upstairs to Gloria. Receiving no answer, he guessed she was asleep, and so went into the pantry for one of the little sandwiches that were always prepared for them. He found Tana seated at the kitchen table before a miscellaneous assortment of odds and ends—cigar boxes, knives, pencils, the tops of cans, and some scraps of paper covered with elaborate figures and diagrams. "'What the devil you doing?' demanded Anthony curiously. Tana politely grinned. "'I show you,' he exclaimed enthusiastically. "'I tell. You making a doghouse?' "'No, sir. Tana grinned again. Make typewriter. Typewriter? Yes, sir. I think, oh, all the time I think, lie in bed, think about typewriter. So you thought you'd make one, eh? Wait, I tell. Anthony, munching a sandwich, leaned leisurely against the sink. Tana opened and closed his mouth several times, as though testing its capacity for action. Then with a rush he began. I been think typewriter has oh many 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 thing oh many 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 keys I see no yes key many 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 letter like so a b c yes you're right wait I tell he screwed his face up in a tremendous effort to express himself. I been think many words in same like i n g you bet a whole raft of them so i make typewriter quick not so many letter that's a great idea tana save time you'll make a fortune press one key and there's ing hope you work it out tana laughed disparagingly wait i tell Where's Mrs. Patch? She out. Wait, I tell. Again he screwed up his face for action. My typewriter. Where is she? Here, I make. He pointed to the miscellany of junk on the table. I mean Mrs. Patch. She out, Tana reassured him. She be back five o'clock, she say. Down in the village? No, went off before lunch. She go Mr. Bleakman. Anthony started. Went out with Mr. Bleakman? She be back five. Without a word, Anthony left the kitchen with Tana's disconsolate, I tell, trailing after him. So this was Gloria's idea of excitement, by God. His fists were clenched. Within a moment, he had worked himself up to a tremendous pitch of indignation. He went to the door and looked out. There was no car in sight, and his watch stood at four minutes of five. With furious energy, he dashed down to the end of the path. 
as far as the bend of the road a mile off he could see no car. Except! But it was a farmer's flivver. Then, in an undignified pursuit of dignity, he rushed back to the shelter of the house as quickly as he had rushed out. Pacing up and down the living-room, he began an angry rehearsal of the speech he would make to her when she came in. "'So this is love,' he would begin. Or, no, it sounded too much like the popular phrase, so this is Paris. He must be dignified, hurt, grieved. Anyhow. So, this is what you do when I have to go up and trot all day around the hot city on business. No wonder I can't write. No wonder I don't dare let you out of my sight." He was expanding now, warming to his subject. "'I'll tell you,' he continued. I'll tell you—he paused, catching a familiar ring in the words, then he realized it was Tana's—I tell. Yet Anthony neither laughed nor seemed absurd to himself. To his frantic imagination it was already six, seven, eight, and she was never coming. Bleakman, finding her bored and unhappy, had persuaded her to go to California with him. There was a great to-do out in front a joyous, "'Yo-ho, Anthony!' and he rose trembling, weakly happy to see her fluttering up the path. Bleakman was following, cap in hand. "'Dearest!' she cried. "'We've been for the best jaunt all over New York State.' "'I'll have to be starting home,' said Bleakman, almost immediately. "'Wish you'd both been here when I came.' "'I'm sorry I wasn't,' answered Anthony dryly. When he had departed, Anthony hesitated. The fear was gone from his heart, yet he felt that some protest was ethically apropos. Gloria resolved his uncertainty. "'I knew you wouldn't mind. He came just before lunch and said he had to go to Garrison on business, and wouldn't I go with him. He looks so lonesome, Anthony, and I drove his car all the way.' Listlessly, Anthony dropped into a chair, his mind tired tired with nothing, tired with everything, with the world's weight he had never chosen to bear. He was ineffectual and vaguely helpless here, as he had always been. One of those personalities, who in spite of all their words, are inarticulate, he seemed to have inherited only the vast tradition of human failure, that and the sense of death. "'I suppose I don't care,' he answered. One must be broad about these things, and Gloria, being young, being beautiful, must have reasonable privileges. Yet it wearied him that he failed to understand. Winter She rolled over on her back and lay still for a moment in the great bed, watching the February sun suffer one last attenuated refinement in its passage through the leaded panes into the room. For a time she had no accurate sense of her whereabouts or of the events of the day before, or the day before that. Then, like a suspended pendulum, memory began to beat out its story, releasing with each swing a burdened quota of time until her life was given back to her. She could hear now Anthony's troubled breathing beside her. She could smell whiskey and cigarette smoke. She noticed that she lacked complete muscular control. When she moved it was not a sinuous motion with the resultant strain distributed easily over her body, 
it was a tremendous effort of her nervous system, as though each time she were hypnotizing herself into performing an impossible action. She was in the bathroom, brushing her teeth to get rid of that intolerable taste, then back by the bedside listening to the rattle of Bound's key in the outer door. "'Wake up, Anthony,' she said sharply. She climbed into bed beside him and closed her eyes. Almost the last thing she remembered was a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Lacey. Mrs. Lacey had said, "'Sure you don't want us to get you a taxi?' And Anthony had replied that he guessed they could walk over to Fifth all right. Then they had both attempted, imprudently, to bow, and collapsed absurdly into a battalion of empty milk-bottles just outside the door. There must have been two dozen milk-bottles standing open-mouthed in the dark. She could conceive of no plausible explanation of those milk-bottles. Perhaps they had been attracted by the singing in the Lacey House, and had hurried over agape with wonder to see the fun. Well, they'd had the worst of it, though it seemed that she and Anthony never would get up, the perverse things rolled so. Still, they had found a taxi. "'My meat is broken, and it'll cost you a dollar and a half to get home,' said the taxi-driver. "'Well,' said Anthony, "'I'm young Packy McFarlane, and if you'll come down here, I'll beat you till you can't stand up.' At that point the man had driven off without them. They must have found another taxi, for they were in the apartment. "'What time is it?' Anthony was sitting up in bed, staring at her with owlish precision. This was obviously a rhetorical question. Gloria could think of no reason why she should be expected to know the time. "'Golly, I feel like the devil,' muttered Anthony dispassionately. Relaxing, he tumbled back upon his pillow. "'Bring on your grim reaper.' "'Anthony, how'd we finally get home last night?' "'Taxi?' "'Oh.' Then, after a pause, "'Did you put me to bed?' "'I don't know.' Seems to me you put me to bed. What day is it? Tuesday? Tuesday. I hope so. If it's Wednesday, I've got to start work at that idiotic place. Supposed to be down at nine or some such ungodly hour. Ask Bounds, suggested Gloria feebly. Bounds! Sprightly, sober, a voice from a world that it seemed in the past two days they had left forever, Bound sprang in short steps down the hall and appeared in the half-darkness of the door. "'What day, Bounds?' "'February the twenty-second, I think, sir.' "'I mean day of the week.' "'Tuesday, sir.' "'Thanks.' After a pause, "'Are you ready for breakfast, sir?' "'Yes. And, Bounds, before you get it, Will you make a pitcher of water and set it here beside the bed? I'm a little thirsty. Yes, sir. Bounds retreated in sober dignity down the hallway. Lincoln's birthday, affirmed Anthony without enthusiasm. Or St. Valentine's or somebody's. When did we start in this insane party? Sunday night? After prayers, he suggested sardonically. We raced all over town in those hansoms, and Maury sat up with his driver, don't you remember? Then we came home, and he tried to cook some bacon. 
came out of the pantry with a few blackened remains, insisting it was fried to the proverbial crisp. Both of them laughed, spontaneously but with some difficulty, and, lying there side by side, reviewed the chain of events that had ended in this rusty and chaotic dawn. They had been in New York for almost four months, since the country had grown too cool in late October. They had given up California this year, partly because of lack of funds, partly with the idea of going abroad should this interminable war, persisting now into its second year, end during the winter. Of late their income had lost elasticity. No longer did it stretch to cover gay whims and pleasant extravagances, and Anthony had spent many puzzled and unsatisfactory hours over a densely figured pad, making remarkable budgets that left huge margins for amusements, trips, etc., and trying to apportion, even approximately, their past expenditures. He remembered a time when in going on a party with his two best friends, he and Mari had invariably paid more than their share of the expenses. They would buy the tickets for the theatre, or squabble between themselves for the dinner check. It had seemed fitting. Dick, with his naivete and his astonishing fund of information about himself, had been a diverting, almost juvenile figure, court gesture to their royalty. But this was no longer true. It was Dick who always had money. It was Anthony who entertained within limitations, always accepting occasional wild, wine-inspired, check-cashing parties, and it was Anthony who was solemn about it next morning, and told the scornful and disgusted Gloria that they'd have to be more careful next time. In the next two years since the publication of The Demon Lover, Dick had made over twenty-five thousand dollars, most of it lately when the reward of the author of fiction had begun to swell unprecedentedly as a result of the voracious hunger of the motion pictures for plots. He received seven hundred dollars for every story, at that time a large emolument for such a young man, he was not quite thirty, and for every one that contained enough action, kissing, shooting, and sacrificing for the movies, he obtained an additional thousand. His stories varied. There was a measure of vitality and a sort of instinctive in all of them, but none attained the personality of the demon lover, and there were several that Anthony considered downright cheap. These, Dick explained severely, were to widen his audience. Wasn't it true that men who had attained real permanence from Shakespeare to Mark Twain had appealed to the many as well as to the elect? Though Anthony and Mari disagreed, Gloria told him to go ahead and make as much money as he could. That was the only thing that counted anyhow. Mari, a little stouter, faintly mellower, and more complacent, had gone to work in Philadelphia. He came to New York once or twice a month, and on such occasions the four of them traveled the popular routes from dinner to the theatre, thence to the frolic, or perhaps, at the urging of the ever-curious Gloria, to one of the cellars of Greenwich Village notorious through the furious but short-lived vogue of the new poetry movement. In January, after many monologues directed at his reticent wife, Anthony determined to get something to do, for the winter at any rate. He wanted to please his grandfather, and even, in a measure, to see how he liked it himself. He discovered during several tentative semi-social calls that employers were not interested in a young man who was only going to try it for a few months or so. 
As the grandson of Adam Patch, he was received everywhere with marked courtesy. But the old man was a back number now. The heyday of his fame, as first an oppressor and then an uplifter of the people, had been during the twenty years preceding his retirement. Anthony even found several of the younger men who were under the impression that Adam Patch had been dead for some years. Eventually Anthony went to his grandfather and asked his advice, which turned out to be that he should enter the bond business as a salesman, a tedious suggestion to Anthony, but one that in the end he determined to follow. Sheer money and deft manipulation had fascinations under all circumstances, while almost any side of manufacturing would be insufferably dull. He considered newspaper work, but decided that the hours were not ordered for a married man. And he lingered over pleasant fancies of himself either as editor of a brilliant weekly of opinion, an American Mercure de France, or as scintillant producer of satiric comedy and Parisian musical review. However, the approaches to these latter guilds seemed to be guarded by professional secrets. Men drifted into them by the devious highways of writing and acting. It was palpably impossible to get on a magazine unless you had been on one before. So in the end he entered, by way of his grandfather's letter, that sanctum Americanum where sat the president of Wilson, Hymer and Hardy at his clear desk, and issued therefrom employed. He was to begin work on the twenty-third of February. In tribute to the momentous occasion this two-day revel had been planned, since, he said, after he began working he'd have to get to bed early during the week. Maury Noble had arrived from Philadelphia on a trip that had to do with seeing some man in Wall Street, whom, incidentally, he failed to see, and Richard Caramel had been half-persuaded, half-tricked into joining them. They had condescended to a wet and fashionable wedding on Monday afternoon, and in the evening had occurred the denouement. Gloria, going beyond her accustomed limit of four precisely timed cocktails, led them on as gay and joyous a bacchanal as they had ever known, disclosing an astonishing knowledge of ballet steps, and singing songs which she confessed had been taught her by her cook when she was innocent and seventeen. She repeated these by request at intervals throughout the evening, with such frank conviviality that Anthony, far from being annoyed, was gratified at this fresh source of entertainment. The occasion was memorable in other ways. A long conversation between Mari and a defunct crab, which he was dragging around on the end of a string, as to whether the crab was fully conversant with the applications of the binomial theorem and the aforementioned race in two handsome cabs with the sedate and impressive shadows of Fifth Avenue for audience, ending in a labyrinthine escape into the darkness of Central Park. Finally Anthony and Gloria had paid a call on some wild young married couple, the Lacys, and collapsed in the empty milk-bottles. Morning now. Theirs to add up the checks cashed here and there in clubs, stores, restaurants theirs to air the dank staleness of wine and cigarettes out of the tall blue front room, to pick up the broken glass and brush at the stained fabric of chairs and sofas, to give bounds suits and dresses for the cleaners, finally to take their smothery, half-feverish bodies and faded, depressed spirits out into the chill air of February, that life might go on and Wilson, Hymer and Hardy obtain the services of a vigorous man at nine next morning. 
Do you remember? called Anthony from the bathroom. When Maury got out at the corner of 110th Street and acted as a traffic cop, beckoning cars forward and motioning them back, they must have thought he was a private detective. After each reminiscence, they both laughed inordinately, their overwrought nerves responding as acutely and janglingly to mirth as to depression. Gloria at the mirror was wondering at the splendid color and freshness of her face. It seemed that she had never looked so well, though her stomach hurt her and her head was aching furiously. The day passed slowly. Anthony, riding in a taxi to his brokers to borrow money on a bond, found that he had only two dollars in his pocket. The fare would cost all of that, but he felt that on this particular afternoon he could not have endured the subway. When the taximeter reached his limit, he must get out and walk. With this, his mind drifted off into one of its characteristic daydreams. In this dream, he discovered that the meter was going too fast, the driver had dishonestly adjusted it. Calmly, he reached his destination and then nonchalantly handed the man what he justly owed him. The man showed fight, but almost before his hands were up, Anthony had knocked him down with one terrific blow. And when he rose, Anthony quickly sidestepped and floored him definitely with a crack in the temple. He was in court now. The judge had fined him five dollars, and he had no money. Would the court take his check? Ah, but the court did not know him. Well, he could identify himself by having them call his apartment. They did so. Yes, it was Mrs. Anthony Patch speaking, but how did she know that this man was her husband? How could she know? Let the police sergeant ask her if she remembered the milk bottles. He leaned forward hurriedly and tapped at the glass. The taxi was only at Brooklyn Bridge, but the meter showed a dollar and eighty cents, and Anthony would never have omitted the ten percent tip. Later in the afternoon he returned to the apartment. Gloria had also been out, shopping, and was asleep, curled in a corner of the sofa with her purchase locked securely in her arms. Her face was as untroubled as a little girl's, and the bundle that she pressed tightly to her bosom was a child's doll, a profound and infinitely healing balm to her disturbed and childish heart. Destiny It was with this party, more especially with Gloria's part in it, that a decided change began to come over their way of living. The magnificent attitude of not giving a damn altered overnight. From being a mere tenant of Gloria's, it became the entire solace and justification for what they chose to do, and what consequence it brought. Not to be sorry, not to lose one cry of regret, to live according to a clear code of honor toward each other, and to seek the moment's happiness as fervently and persistently as possible. "'No one cares about us but ourselves, Anthony,' she said one day. It'd be ridiculous for me to go about pretending I felt any obligations toward the world, and as for worrying about what people think about me, I simply don't, that's all. Since I was a little girl in dancing school, I've been criticized by the mothers of all the little girls who weren't as popular as I was, and I've always looked on criticism as a sort of envious tribute." This was because of a party in the Bull Mitch one night where Constance Merriam had seen her as one of a highly stimulated party of four. Constance Merriam, as an old-school friend, had gone to the trouble of inviting her to lunch next day in order to inform her how terrible it was. 
I told her I couldn't see it," Gloria told Anthony. Eric Merriam is a sort of sublimated Percy Wolcott. You remember that man in Hot Springs I told you about? His idea of respecting Constance is to leave her at home with her sewing and her baby and her book, and such innocuous amusements, whenever he's going on a party that promises to be anything but deathly dull. Did you tell her that? I certainly did and I told her that what she really objected to was that I was having a better time than she was." Anthony applauded her. He was tremendously proud of Gloria, proud that she never failed to eclipse whatever other women might be in the party, proud that men were always glad to revel with her in great rowdy groups, without any attempt to do more than enjoy her beauty and the warmth of her vitality. These parties gradually became their chief source of entertainment. Still in love, still enormously interested in each other, they yet found as spring drew near that staying at home in the evening palled on them. Books were unreal. The old magic of being alone had long since vanished. Instead they preferred to be bored by a stupid musical comedy, or to go to dinner with the most uninteresting of their acquaintances, so long as there would be enough cocktails to keep the conversation from becoming utterly intolerable. A scattering of younger married people who had been their friends in school or college, as well as a varied assortment of single men, began to think instinctively of them whenever color and excitement were needed, so there was scarcely a day without its phone call, its, wonder what you were doing this evening. Wives, as a rule, were afraid of Gloria. Her facile attainment of the center of the stage, her innocent but nevertheless disturbing way of becoming a favorite with husbands, these things drove them instinctively into an attitude of profound distrust, heightened by the fact that Gloria was largely unresponsive to any intimacy shown her by a woman. On the appointed Wednesday in February, Anthony had gone to the imposing offices of Wilson, Hymer, and Hardy and listened to many vague instructions delivered by an energetic young man of about his own age named Collar, who wore a defiant yellow pompadour and, in announcing himself as an assistant secretary, gave the impression that it was a tribute to exceptional ability. "'There's two kinds of men here you'll find,' he said. "'There's the man who gets to be an assistant secretary or treasurer, gets his name on our folder here before he's thirty, and there's the man who gets his name there at forty-five. The man who gets his name there at forty-five stays there the rest of his life." "'How about the man who gets it there at thirty? inquired Anthony politely. "'Why, he gets up here, you see,' he pointed to a list of assistant vice-presidents upon the folder. "'Or maybe he gets to be president or secretary or treasurer.' "'And what about these over here? Those? Oh, those are the trustees the men with capital. I see. Now some people," continued Collar, think that whether a man gets started early or late depends on whether he's got a college education. But they're wrong. I see. I had one. I was Buckley, class of 1911, but when I came down to the street I soon found that the things that would help me here weren't the fancy things I learned in college. In fact, I had to get a lot of fancy stuff out of my head." Anthony could not help wondering what possible fancy stuff he had learned at Buckley in 1911. An irrepressible idea that it was some sort of needlework recurred to him throughout the rest of the conversation. "'See that fellow over there? 
Collar pointed to a youngish-looking man with handsome gray hair, sitting at a desk inside a mahogany railing. "'That's Mr. Ellinger, the first vice-president. Been everywhere, seen everything. Got a fine education.' In vain did Anthony try to open his mind to the romance of finance. He could think of Mr. Ellinger only as one of the buyers of the handsome leather sets of Thackeray, Balzac, Hugo, and Gibbon that lined the walls of the big bookstores. Through the damp and uninspiring month of March he was prepared for salesmanship. Lacking enthusiasm, he was capable of viewing the turmoil and bustle that surrounded him only as a fruitless circumambient striving toward an incomprehensible goal tangibly evidenced only by the rival mansions of Mr. Frick and Mr. Carnegie on Fifth Avenue. That these portentous vice-presidents and trustees should be actually the fathers of the best men he had known at Harvard seemed to him incongruous. He ate in an employee's lunchroom upstairs with an uneasy suspicion that he was being uplifted, wondering through that first week if the dozens of young clerks, some of them alert and immaculate and just out of college, lived in flamboyant hope of crowding onto that narrow slip of cardboard before the catastrophic thirties. The conversation that interwove with the pattern of the day's work was all much of a piece. One discussed how Mr. Wilson had made his money, what method Mr. Hymer had employed, and the means resorted to by Mr. Hardy. One related age-old but eternally breathless anecdotes of the fortune stumbled on precipitously in the street by a butcher or a bartender, or a darn messenger boy by golly, and then one talked of the current gambles. And whether it was best to go out for a hundred thousand a year, or be content with twenty. During the preceding year one of the assistant secretaries had invested all his savings in Bethlehem Steel. The story of his spectacular magnificence of his haughty resignation in January, and of the triumphal palace he was now building in California, was the favorite office subject. The man's very name had acquired a magic significance, symbolizing as he did the aspirations of all good Americans. Anecdotes were told about him. How one of the vice-presidents had advised him to sell by golly, but he had hung on, even bought on margin. And now look where he is! Such, obviously, was the stuff of life, a dizzy triumph dazzling the eyes of all of them, a gypsy siren to content them with meager wage and with the arithmetical improbability of their eventual success. To Anthony the notion became appalling. He felt that to succeed here the idea of success must grasp and limit his mind. It seemed to him that the essential element in these men at the top was their faith that their affairs were the very core of life all other things being equal, self-assurance and opportunism won out over technical knowledge. It was obvious that the more expert work went on near the bottom, so with appropriate efficiency the technical experts were kept there. His determination to stay in at night during the week did not survive, and a good half of the time he came to work with a splitting, sickish headache, and the crowded horror of the morning subway ringing in his ears like an echo of hell. Then, abruptly, he quit. He had remained in bed all one Monday, and late in the evening, overcome by one of those attacks of moody despair to which he periodically succumbed, he wrote and mailed a letter to Mr. Wilson, confessing that he considered himself ill-adapted to the work. Gloria, 
coming in from the theatre with Richard Caramel, found him on the lounge, silently staring at the high ceiling, more depressed and discouraged than he had been at any time since their marriage. She wanted him to whine. If he had, she would have reproached him bitterly, for she was not a little annoyed, but he only lay there so utterly miserable that she felt sorry for him, and kneeling down she stroked his head, saying how little it mattered, how little anything mattered so long as they loved each other. It was like their first year, and Anthony, reacting to her cool hand, to her voice that was soft as breath itself upon his ear, became almost cheerful, and talked with her of his future plans. He even regretted silently, before he went to bed, that he had so hastily mailed his resignation. "'Even when everything seems rotten, you can't trust that judgment,' Gloria had said. "'It's the sum of all your judgments that counts.' In mid-April came a letter from the real estate agent in Marietta, encouraging them to take the gray house for another year at a slightly increased rental, and enclosing a lease made out for their signatures. For a week lease and letter lay carelessly neglected on Anthony's desk. They had no intention of returning to Marietta. They were weary of the place, and had been bored most of the preceding summer. Besides, their car had deteriorated to a rattling mass of hypochondriacal metal, and a new one was financially inadvisable. But because of another wild revel, enduring through four days and participated in, at one time or another, by more than a dozen people, they did sign the lease. To their utter horror they signed it and sent it, and immediately it seemed as though they heard the grey house, drably malevolent at last, licking its white chops and waiting to devour them. "'Anthony, where's that lease?' she called in high alarm one Sunday morning, sick and sober to reality. "'Where did you leave it? It was here!' Then she knew where it was. She remembered the house-party they had planned on the crest of their exuberance. She remembered a roomful of men, to whose less exhilarated moments she and Anthony were of no importance, and Anthony's boast of the transcendent merit and seclusion of the grey house, that it was so isolated that it didn't matter how much noise went on there. Then Dick, who had visited them, cried enthusiastically that it was the best little house imaginable, and that they were idiotic not to take it for another summer. It had been easy to work themselves up to a sense of how hot and deserted the city was getting, of how cool and ambrosial were the charms of Marietta. Anthony had picked up the lease and waved it wildly, found Gloria happily acquiescent, and with one last burst of garrulous decision, during which all the men agreed with solemn handshakes that they would come out for a visit. "'Anthony!' she cried. "'We've signed and sent it!' "'What?' "'The lease!' "'What the devil?' "'Oh, Anthony!' There was utter misery in her voice. For the summer, for eternity, they had built themselves a prison. It seemed to strike at the last roots of their stability. Anthony thought they might arrange it with the real estate agent. They could no longer afford the double rent, and going to Marietta meant giving up his apartment, his reproachless apartment with the exquisite bath and the rooms for which he had bought his furniture and hangings. It was the closest to a home that he had ever had, familiar with memories of four colorful years. But it was not arranged with a real estate agent, nor was it arranged at all. 
dispiritedly, without even any talk of making the best of it, without even Gloria's all-sufficing I don't care, they went back to the house that they now knew heeded neither youth nor love, only those austere and incommunicative memories that they could never share. End of Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Two Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Three of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sinister Summer There was a horror in the house that summer. It came with them and settled itself over the place like a somber pall, pervasive through the lower rooms, gradually spreading and climbing up the narrow stairs until it oppressed their very sleep. Anthony and Gloria grew to hate being there alone. Her bedroom, which had seemed so pink and young and delicate, appropriate to her pastel-shaded lingerie tossed here and there on chair and bed, seemed now to whisper with rustling curtains, "'Ah, my beautiful young lady, yours is not the first daintiness and delicacy that has faded here under the summer suns. Generations of unloved women have adorned themselves by that glass for rustic lovers who paid no heed.' Youth has come into this room in palest blue and left it in the gray cerements of despair, and through long nights many girls have lain awake where that bed stands pouring out waves of misery into the darkness. Gloria finally tumbled all her clothes and unguents ingloriously out of it, declaring that she had come to live with Anthony, and making the excuse that one of her screens was rotten and admitted bugs. So her room was abandoned to insensitive guests, and they dressed and slept in her husband's chamber, which Gloria considered somehow good, as though Anthony's presence there had acted as exterminator of any uneasy shadows of the past that might have hovered about its walls. The distinction between good and bad, ordered early and summarily out of both their lives, had been reinstated in another form. Gloria insisted that any one invited to the gray house must be good, which, in the case of a girl, meant that she must be either simple and reproachless, or, if otherwise, must possess a certain solidity and strength. Always intensely skeptical of her sex, her judgments were now concerned with the question of whether women were or were not clean. By uncleanliness she meant a variety of things—a lack of pride, a slackness in fiber, and, most of all, the unmistakable aura of promiscuity. "'Women soil easily,' she said, "'far more easily than men. Unless a girl's very young and brave, it's almost impossible for her to go downhill without a certain hysterical animality, the cunning, dirty sort of animality. A man's different, and I suppose that's why one of the commonest characters of romance is a man going gallantly to the devil.' She was disposed to like many men, preferably those who gave her frank homage and unfailing entertainment, but often, with a flash of insight, she told Anthony that some one of his friends was merely using him, and consequently had best be left alone. Anthony customarily demurred, insisting that the accused was a good one, but he found that his judgment was more fallible than hers memorably when, as it happened on several occasions, he was left with a succession of restaurant checks for which to render a solitary account. 
more from their fear of solitude than from any desire to go through the fuss and bother of entertaining, they filled the house with guests every weekend, and often on through the week. The weekend parties were much the same. When the three or four men invited had arrived, drinking was more or less in order, followed by a hilarious dinner and a ride to the Cradle Beach Country Club, which they had joined because it was inexpensive, lively if not fashionable, and almost a necessity for just such occasions as these. Moreover, it was of no great moment what one did there, and so long as the patch party were reasonably inaudible, it mattered little whether or not the social dictators of Cradle Beach saw the gay Gloria imbibing cocktails in the supper-room at frequent intervals during the evening. Saturday ended, generally, in a glamorous confusion, it proving often necessary to assist a muddled guest to bed. Sunday brought the New York papers and a quiet morning of recuperating on the porch, and Sunday afternoon met good-bye to one or two guests who must return to the city, and a great revival of drinking among the one or two who remained until the next day, concluding in a convivial if not hilarious evening. The faithful Tana, pedagogue by nature and man of all work by profession, had returned with them. Among their more frequent guests, a tradition had sprung up about him. Mari Noble remarked one afternoon that his real name was Tannenbaum, and that he was a German agent kept in this country to disseminate Teutonic propaganda through Westchester County, and after that mysterious letters began to arrive from Philadelphia addressed to the bewildered Oriental as Lieutenant Emil Tannenbaum, containing a few cryptic messages signed General Staff, and adorned with an atmospheric double column of facetious Japanese. Anthony always handed them to Tana without a smile. Hours afterward the recipient could be found puzzling over them in the kitchen, and declaring earnestly that the perpendicular symbols were not Japanese, nor anything resembling Japanese. Gloria had taken a strong dislike to the man ever since the day when, returning unexpectedly from the village, she had discovered him reclining on Anthony's bed, puzzling out a newspaper. It was the instinct of all servants to be fond of Anthony and to detest Gloria, and Tana was no exception to the rule. But he was thoroughly afraid of her, and made plain his aversion only in his moodier moments by subtly addressing Anthony with the remarks intended for her ear. "'What Miss Potts want dinner?' he would say, looking at his master. Or else he would comment about the bitter selfishness of American peoples, in such manner that there was no doubt who were the peoples referred to. But they dared not dismiss him. Such a step would have been abhorrent to their inertia. They endured Tana as they endured ill weather and sickness of the body and the estimable will of God, as they endured all things, even themselves. In Darkness One sultry afternoon late in July, Richard Caramel telephoned from New York that he and Mari were coming out, bringing a friend with them. They arrived about five, a little drunk, accompanied by a small, stocky man of thirty-five, whom they introduced as Mr. Joe Hull, one of the best fellows that Anthony and Gloria had ever met. Joe Hull had a yellow beard, continually fighting through his skin, and a low voice which varied between basso profundo and a husky whisper. Anthony, carrying Mari's suitcase upstairs, followed into the room and carefully closed the door. "'Who is this fellow?' he demanded. 
Maury chuckled enthusiastically. Who? Hull? Oh, he's all right. He's a good one. Yes, but who is he? Hull? He's just a good fellow. He's a prince. His laughter redoubled, culminating in a succession of pleasant cat-like grins. Anthony hesitated between a smile and a frown. He looks sort of funny to me. Weird-looking clothes. He paused. I've got a sneaking suspicion. You two picked him up somewhere last night. Ridiculous, declared Maury. Why, I've known him all my life. However, as he capped this statement with another series of chuckles, Anthony was impelled to remark, The devil you have! Later, just before dinner, while Maury and Dick were conversing uproariously, with Joe Hull listening in silence as he sipped his drink, Gloria drew Anthony into the dining-room. "'I don't like this man Hull,' she said. "'I wish he'd use Tana's bathtub.' "'I can't very well ask him to.' "'Well, I don't want him in ours.' "'He seems to be a simple soul.' "'He's got on white shoes that look like gloves. I can see his toes right through them. Ugh! Who is he, anyway?' "'You've got me.' "'Well, I think they've got their nerve to bring him out here. This isn't a satyr's rescue home.' "'They were tight when they phoned. Mari said they'd been on a party since yesterday afternoon.' Gloria shook her head angrily, and saying no more, returned to the porch. Anthony saw that she was trying to forget her uncertainty and devote herself to enjoying the evening. It had been a tropical day, and even into late twilight the heat-waves emanating from the dry road were quivering faintly like undulating panes of isinglass. The sky was cloudless, but far beyond the woods in the direction of the sound a faint and persistent rolling had commenced. When Tana announced dinner, the men, at a word from Gloria, remained coatless and went inside. Mari began a song, which they accomplished in harmony during the first course. It had two lines and was sung to a popular air called Daisy Deer. The lines were, The panic has come over us, so has the moral decline. Each rendition was greeted with bursts of enthusiasm and prolonged applause. "'Cheer up, Gloria,' suggested Maury. "'You seem the least bit depressed.' "'I'm not,' she lied. "'Here, Tannenbaum,' he called over his shoulder. "'I filled you a drink. Come on!' Gloria tried to stay his arm. "'Please don't, Maury. "'Why not? Maybe he'll play the flute for us after dinner. Here, Tana!' Tana, grinning, bore the glass away to the kitchen. In a few moments Mari gave him another. "'Cheer up, Gloria!' he cried. "'For heaven's sakes, everybody, cheer up, Gloria!' "'Dearest, have another drink,' counseled Anthony. "'Do, please!' "'Cheer up, Gloria!' said Joe Hull easily. Gloria winced at this uncalled-for use of her first name, and glanced around to see if anyone else had noticed it the word coming so glibly from the lips of a man to whom she had taken an inordinate dislike repelled her. A moment later she noticed that Joe Hull had given Tana another drink, and her anger increased, heightened somewhat from the effects of the alcohol. "'And once,' Mari was saying, 
Peter Granby and I went into a Turkish bath in Boston about two o'clock at night. There was no one there but the proprietor, and we jammed him into a closet and locked the door. Then a fellow came in and wanted a Turkish bath. Thought we were the rubbers, by gully. Well, we just picked him up and tossed him into the pool with all his clothes on. Then we dragged him out and laid him on a slab and slapped him until he was black and blue. Not so rough, fellows, he'd say in a little squeaky voice. Please! Was this Maury? thought Gloria. From anyone else the story would have amused her. But from Maury, the infinitely appreciative, the apotheosis of tact and consideration, the panic has come over us. So has... A drum of thunder from outside drowned out the rest of the song. Gloria shivered and tried to empty her glass, but the first taste nauseated her, and she set it down. Dinner was over, and they all marched into the big room, bearing several bottles and decanters. Someone had closed the porch door to keep out the wind, and in consequence circular tentacles of cigar smoke were twisting already upon the heavy air. Paging Lieutenant Tannenbaum! Again it was the changeling Maury. Bring us the flute! Anthony and Maury rushed into the kitchen. Richard Caramel started the phonograph and approached Gloria. Dance with your well-known cousin. I don't want to dance. Then I'm going to carry you around. As though they were doing something of overpowering importance, he picked her up in his fat little arms and started trotting gravely about the room. Set me down, Dick. I'm dizzy," she insisted. He dumped her in a bouncing bundle on the couch, and rushed off to the kitchen, shouting, "'Tana! Tana!' Then, without warning, she felt other arms around her, felt herself lifted from the lounge. Joe Hull had picked her up and was trying, drunkenly, to imitate Dick. "'Put me down,' she said sharply. His maudlin laugh and the sight of that prickly yellow jaw close to her face stirred her to intolerable disgust. At once! The panic! he began, but got no further, for Gloria's hand swung around swiftly and caught him in the cheek. At this he all at once let go of her, and she fell to the floor, her shoulder hitting the table a glancing blow in transit. Then the room seemed full of men and smoke. There was Tana in his white coat, reeling about supported by Mari. Into his flute he was blowing a weird blend of sound that was known, cried Anthony, as the Japanese train song. Joe Hull had found a box of candles and was juggling them, yelling, One down! every time he missed. And Dick was dancing by himself in a fascinated whirl around and about the room. It appeared to her that everything in the room was staggering in grotesque fourth-dimensional gyrations through intersecting planes of hazy blue. Outside the storm had come up amazingly. The lulls within were filled with the scrape of the tall bushes against the house and the roaring of the rain on the tin roof of the kitchen. The lightning was interminable, letting down thick drips of thunder, like pig-iron from the heart of a white-hot furnace. Gloria could see that the rain was spitting in at three of the windows, but she could not move to shut them. She was in the hall. She had said good night, but no one had heard or heeded her. It seemed for an instant as though something had looked down over the head of the banister, but she could not have gone back into the living room, 
better madness than the madness of that clamor. Upstairs she fumbled for the electric switch and missed it in the darkness. A room full of lightning showed her the button plainly on the wall. But when the impenetrable black shut down, it again eluded her fumbling fingers, so she slipped off her dress and petticoat and threw herself weakly on the dry side of the half-drenched bed. She shut her eyes. From downstairs arose the babble of the drinkers, punctured suddenly by a tinkling shiver of broken glass and then another, and by a soaring fragment of unsteady, irregular song. She lay there for something over two hours, so she calculated afterward, sheerly by piecing together the bits of time. She was conscious, even aware, after a long while, that the noise downstairs had lessened, and that the storm was moving off westward, throwing back lingering showers of sound that fell, heavy and lifeless as her soul, into the soggy fields. This was succeeded by a slow, reluctant scattering of the rain and wind, until there was nothing outside her windows but a gentle dripping and the swishing play of a cluster of wet vine against the sill. She was in a state halfway between sleeping and waking, with neither condition predominant, and she was harassed by a desire to rid herself of a weight pressing down upon her breast. She felt that if she could cry the weight would be lifted, and forcing the lids of her eyes together she tried to raise a lump in her throat, to no avail. Drip, drip, drip. The sound was not unpleasant like spring, like a cool rain of her childhood, that made cheerful mud in her backyard and watered the tiny garden she had dug with miniature rake and spade and hoe. Drip, drip. It was like the days when the rain came out of the yellow skies that melted just before twilight and shot one radiant shaft of sunlight diagonally down the heavens into the damp green trees. So cool, so clear and clean and her mother there at the center of the world, at the center of the rain, safe and dry and strong. She wanted her mother now, and her mother was dead, beyond sight and touch forever. And this weight was pressing on her, pressing on her. Oh, it pressed on her so! She became rigid. Someone had come to the door and was standing regarding her, very quiet except for a slight swaying motion. She could see the outline of this figure distinct against the indistinguishable light. There was no sound anywhere, only a great persuasive silence. Even the dripping had ceased. Only this figure, swaying, swaying in the doorway, an indiscernible and subtly menacing terror, a personality filthy under its varnish, like smallpox spots under a layer of powder. Yet her tired heart, beating until it shook her breasts, made her sure that there was still life in her, desperately shaken, threatened. The minute, or succession of minutes, prolonged itself interminably, and a swimming blur began to form before her eyes, which tried with childish persistence to pierce the gloom in the direction of the door. In another instant it seemed that some unimaginable force would shatter her out of existence. And then the figure in the doorway, it was Hull, she saw, Hull, turned deliberately, and, still swaying, moved back and off, as if absorbed into that incomprehensible light that had given him dimension. Blood rushed back into her limbs, blood and life together. With a start of energy she sat upright, 
shifting her body until her feet touched the floor over the side of the bed. She knew what she must do. Now, now, before it was too late. She must go out into this cool damp, out, away, to feel the wet swish of the grass around her feet and the fresh moisture on her forehead. Mechanically she struggled into her clothes, groping in the dark of the closet for a hat. She must go from this house where the thing hovered that pressed upon her bosom, or else made itself into stray, swaying figures in the gloom. In a panic she fumbled clumsily at her coat, found the sleeve just as she heard Anthony's footsteps on the lower stair. She dared not wait, he might not let her go, and even Anthony was part of this wait, part of this evil house and the somber darkness that was growing up about it. Through the hall, then, and down the back stairs, hearing Anthony's voice in the bedroom she had just left. Gloria! Gloria! But she had reached the kitchen now, passed out through the doorway into the night. A hundred drops, startled by a flare of wind from a dripping tree, scattered on her and she pressed them gladly to her face with hot hands. Gloria! Gloria! The voice was infinitely remote muffed and made plaintive by the walls she had just left. She rounded the house and started down the front path toward the road, almost exultant as she turned into it, and followed the carpet of short grass alongside, moving with caution in the intense darkness. "'Gloria!' She broke into a run, stumbled over the segment of a branch twisted off by the wind. The voice was outside the house now. Anthony, finding the bedroom deserted, had come onto the porch. But this thing was driving her forward. It was back there with Anthony, and she must go on in her flight under this dim and oppressive heaven, forcing herself through the silence ahead as though it were a tangible barrier before her. She had gone some distance along the barely discernible road, probably half a mile, past a single deserted barn that loomed up, black and foreboding, the only building of any sort between the gray house and Marietta. Then she turned the fork, where the road entered the wood and ran between two high walls of leaves and branches that nearly touched overhead. She noticed suddenly a thin, longitudinal gleam of silver upon the road before her, like a bright sword half embedded in the mud. As she came closer she gave a little cry of satisfaction. It was a wagon-rut full of water, and glancing heavenward she saw a light rift of sky and knew that the moon was out. Gloria! She started violently. Anthony was not two hundred feet behind her. Gloria, wait for me! She shut her lips tightly to keep from screaming, and increased her gait. Before she had gone another hundred yards the woods disappeared, rolling back like a dark stocking from the leg of the road. Three minutes' walk ahead of her, suspended in the now high and limitless air, she saw a thin interlacing of attenuated gleams and glitters, centered in a regular undulation on some one invisible point. Abruptly she knew where she would go. That was the great cascade of wires that rose high over the river, like the legs of a gigantic spider whose eye was the little green light in the switch-house, and ran with the railroad bridge in the direction of the station. The station! There would be the train to take her away. Gloria, it's me! It's Anthony! Gloria, I won't try to stop you! For God's sake, where are you?" 
She made no answer, but began to run, keeping on the high side of the road and leaping the gleaming puddles, dimensionless pools of thin, unsubstantial gold. Turning sharply to the left, she followed a narrow wagon-road, serving to avoid a dark body on the ground. She looked up as an owl hooted mournfully from a solitary tree. Just ahead of her she could see the trestle that led to the railroad bridge and the steps mounting up to it. The station lay across the river. Another sound startled her, the melancholy siren of an approaching train, and almost simultaneously a repeated call, thin now and far away. Gloria! Gloria! Anthony must have followed the main road. She laughed with a sort of malicious cunning at having eluded him. She could spare the time to wait until the train went by. The siren soared again, closer at hand, and then, with no anticipatory roar and clamor, a dark and sinuous body curved into view against the shadows far down the high bank track, and with no sound but the rush of the cleft wind and the clock-like tick of the rails, moved toward the bridge. It was an electric train. Above the engine, two vivid blurs of blue light formed incessantly a radiant crackling bar between them, which, like a spluttering flame in a lamp beside a corpse, lit for an instant the successive rows of trees and caused Gloria to draw back instinctively to the far side of the road. The light was tepid, the temperature of warm blood. The clicking blended suddenly with itself in a rush of even sound, and then, elongating in somber elasticity, the thing roared blindly by her and thundered onto the bridge, racing the lurid shaft of fire it cast into the solemn river alongside. Then it contracted swiftly, sucking in its sound until it left only a reverberant echo, which died upon the farther bank. Silence crept down again over the wet country. The faint dripping resumed, and suddenly a great shower of drops tumbled upon Gloria, stirring her out of the trance-like torpor which the passage of the train had wrought. She ran swiftly down a descending level to the bank, and began climbing the iron stairway to the bridge, remembering that it was something she had always wanted to do, and that she would have the added excitement of traversing the yard-wide plank that ran beside the tracks over the river. There, this was better. She was at the top now and could see the lands about her as successive sweeps of open country, cold under the moon, coarsely patched and seamed with thin rows and heavy clumps of trees. To her right, half a mile down the river, which trailed away behind the light like the shiny, slimy path of a snail, winked the scattered lights of Marietta. Not two hundred yards away at the end of the bridge squatted the station, marked by a sullen lantern. The oppression was lifted now. The treetops below her were rocking the young starlight to a haunted doze. She stretched out her arms with a gesture of freedom. This was what she had wanted, to stand alone where it was high and cool. Gloria! Like a startled child, she scurried along the plank, hopping, skipping, jumping, with an ecstatic sense of her own physical lightness. Let him come now. She no longer feared that. Only she must first reach the station, because that was part of the game. She was happy. Her hat, snatched off, was clutched tightly in her hand, and her short, curled hair bobbed up and down about her ears. She had thought she would never feel so young again, 
But this was her night, her world. Triumphantly she laughed as she left the plank, and reaching the wooden platform flung herself down happily beside an iron roof-post. "'Here I am,' she called, gay as the dawn in her elation. "'Here I am, Anthony, old worried Anthony.' Gloria. He reached the platform, ran toward her. "'Are you all right?' Coming up, he knelt and took her in his arms. "'Yes.' "'What's the matter? Why did you leave?' he queried anxiously. "'I had to. There was something—' She paused, and a flicker of uneasiness lashed at her mind. "'There was something sitting on me, here.' She put her hand on her breast. I had to go out and get away from it. What do you mean by something? I don't know. That man Hull, did he bother you? He came to my door drunk. I think I'd gotten sort of crazy by that time. Gloria, dearest. Wearily, she laid her head upon his shoulder. Let's go back, he suggested. She shivered. Uh, no, I couldn't it had come and sit on me again." Her voice rose to a cry that hung plaintive on the darkness. "'That thing!' "'There, there,' he soothed her, pulling her close to him. "'We won't do anything you don't want to do. What do you want to do? Just sit here?' "'I want—I want to go away.' "'Where?' "'Oh, anywhere.' "'By golly, Gloria!' he cried. "'You're still tight!' "'No, I'm not. I haven't been all evening. I went upstairs about—oh, I don't know, about half an hour after dinner. Ouch!' He had inadvertently touched her right shoulder. "'It hurts me. I hurt it some way. I don't know. Somebody picked me up and dropped me.' "'Gloria, come home. It's laid and damp.' I can't," she wailed. Oh, Anthony, don't ask me to. I will tomorrow. You go home and I'll wait here for a train. I'll go to a hotel. I'll go with you. No, I don't want you with me. I want to be alone. I want to sleep. Oh, I want to sleep. And then tomorrow, when you've got all the smell of whiskey and cigarettes out of the house and everything straight and Hull is gone, then I'll come home. If I went now, that thing—oh!" She covered her eyes with her hand. Anthony saw the futility of trying to persuade her. "'I was all sober when you left,' he said. Dick was asleep on the lounge, and Mari and I were having a discussion. That fellow Hull had wandered off somewhere. Then I began to realize I hadn't seen you for several hours, so I went upstairs. He broke off as a salutatory, "'Hello there!' boomed suddenly out of the darkness. Gloria sprang to her feet, and he did likewise. "'It's Mari's voice,' she cried excitedly. "'If it's Hull with him, keep them away! Keep them away!' "'Who's there?' Anthony called. "'Just Dick and Mari,' returned two voices reassuringly. "'Where's Hull?' "'He's in bed, passed out.' their figures appeared dimly on the platform. "'What the devil are you and Gloria doing here?' inquired Richard Caramel, with sleepy bewilderment. "'What are you two doing here?' 
Maury laughed. Damned if I know. We followed you, and had the deuce of a time doing it. I heard you were out on the porch yelling for Gloria, so I woke up the caramel here and got it through his head, with some difficulty, that if there was a search party we'd better be on it. He slowed me up by sitting down in the road at intervals and asking me what it was all about. We tracked you by the pleasant scent of Canadian Club." There was a rattle of nervous laughter under the low train-shed. "'How did you track us, really?' "'Well, we followed along down the road, and then we suddenly lost you. Seems you turned off at a wagon-trail. After a while somebody hailed us and asked us if we were looking for a young girl. Well, we came up and found it was a little shivering old man, sitting on a fallen tree, like somebody in a fairy tale. She turned down here, he said, and most stepped on me, going somewhere in a awful hustle, and then a fella in short golfin' pants come running along and went after her. He throwed me this. The old fellow had a dollar bill he was waving around. Oh, the poor old man, ejaculated Gloria, moved. I threw him another, and we went on, though he asked us to stay and tell him what it was all about. Poor old man, repeated Gloria dismally. Dick sat down sleepily on a box. And now what? he inquired in the tone of stoic resignation. Gloria's upset, explained Anthony. She and I are going to the city by the next train. Murray, in the darkness, had pulled a timetable from his pocket. Strike a match. A tiny flare leaped out of the opaque background illuminating the four faces, grotesque and unfamiliar here in the open night. Let's see. Two, two-thirty. No, that's evening. By gad, you won't get a train until five-thirty. Anthony hesitated. Well, he muttered uncertainly, we've decided to stay here and wait for it. You two might as well go back and sleep. You go too, Anthony, urged Gloria. I want you to have some sleep, dear. You've been as pale as a ghost all day. Why, you little idiot! Dick yawned. Very well, you stay, we stay. He walked out from under the shed and surveyed the heavens. Rather a nice night, after all. Stars are out and everything. Exceptionally tasty assortment of them. Let's see. Gloria moved after him, and the other two followed her. Let's sit out here, she suggested. I like it much better. Anthony and Dick converted a long box into a backrest and found a board dry enough for Gloria to sit on. Anthony dropped down beside her, and with some effort Dick hoisted himself onto an apple barrel near them. Tana went to sleep in the porch hammock, he remarked. We carried him in and left him next to the kitchen stove to dry. He was drenched to the skin. That awful little man, sighed Gloria. How do you do? The voice, sonorous and funereal, had come from above, and they looked up startled to find that in some manner Mari had climbed to the roof of the shed, where he sat dangling his feet over the edge, outlined as a shadowy and fantastic gargoyle against the now brilliant sky. It must be for such occasions as this, he began softly, his words having the effect of floating down from an immense height and settling softly upon his auditors, that the righteous of the land decorate the railroads with billboards asserting in red and yellow that Jesus Christ is God, 
placing them, appropriately enough, next to announcements that Gunter's whiskey is good." There was gentle laughter, and the three below kept their heads tilted upward. "'I think I shall tell you the story of my education,' continued Maury, under the sardonic constellations. "'Do, please. Shall I, really?' They waited expectantly while he directed a ruminative yawn toward the white, smiling moon. "'Well,' he began, "'as an infant I prayed. I stored up prayers against future wickedness. One year I stored up nineteen hundred now-I-lay-me's.' "'Throw down a cigarette,' murmured someone. A small package reached the platform simultaneously with the stentorian command, "'Silence!' I am about to unburden myself of many memorable remarks reserved for the darkness of such earths and the brilliance of such skies." Below a lighted match was passed from cigarette to cigarette. The voice resumed. I was adept at fooling the deity. I prayed immediately after all crimes until eventually prayer and crime became indistinguishable to me. I believe that because a man cried out, my God, when a safe fell on him, it proved that belief was rooted deep in the human breast. Then I went to school. For fourteen years half a hundred earnest men pointed to ancient flintlocks and cried to me, There's the real thing. These new rifles are only shallow, superficial imitations. They damned the books I read and the things I thought by calling them immoral. Later the fashion changed and they damned things by calling them clever. And so I turned, canny for my years, from the professors to the poets, listening to the lyric tenor of Swinburne and the tenor robusto of Shelley, to Shakespeare with his first bass and his fine range, to Tennyson with his second bass and occasional falsetto, to Milton and Marlowe, Basso's profundo. I gave ear to Browning chatting, Byron declaiming, and Wordsworth droning. This, at least, did me no harm. I learned a little of beauty, enough to know that it had nothing to do with truth. And I found, moreover, that there was no great literary tradition. There was only the tradition of the eventful death of every literary tradition. Then I grew up, and the beauty of succulent illusions fell away from me. The fiber of my mind coarsened, and my eyes grew miserably keen. Life rose around my island like a sea, and presently I was swimming. The transition was subtle. The thing had lain in wait for me for some time. It has its insidious, seemingly innocuous trap for everyone. With me? No, I didn't try to seduce the janitor's wife, nor did I run through the streets unclothed, proclaiming my virility. It is never quite passion that does the business. It is the dress that passion wears. I became bored. That was all. Boredom, which is another name and a frequent disguise for vitality, became the unconscious motive of all my acts. Beauty was behind me, do you understand? I was grown. He paused. End of school and college period. Opening of Part Two. Three quietly active points of light showed the location of his listeners. Gloria was now half sitting, half lying in Anthony's lap. His arm was around her so tightly 
that she could hear the beating of his heart. Richard Caramel, perched on the apple-barrel, from time to time stirred and gave off a faint grunt. I grew up then, into this land of jazz, and fell immediately into a state of almost audible confusion. Life stood over me like an immoral schoolmistress, editing my ordered thoughts. But with a mistaken faith in intelligence I plodded on. I read Smith, who laughed at charity and insisted that the sneer was the highest form of self-expression, but Smith himself replaced charity as an obscurer of the light. I read Jones, who neatly disposed of individualism, and behold, Jones was still in my way. I did not think. I was a battleground for the thoughts of many men. Rather, I was one of those desirable but impotent countries over which the great powers surge back and forth. I reached maturity under the impression that I was gathering the experience to order my life for happiness. Indeed, I accomplished the not unusual feat of solving each question in my mind long before it presented itself to me in life, and of being beaten and bewildered just the same. But after a few tastes of this latter dish I had had enough. Here, I said, experience is not worth the getting. It's not a thing that happens pleasantly to a passive you. It's a wall that an act of you runs up against. So I wrapped myself in what I thought was my invulnerable skepticism and decided that my education was complete. But it was too late. Protect myself as I might by making no new ties with tragic and predestined humanity, I was lost with the rest. I had traded the fight against love for the fight against loneliness, the fight against life for the fight against death." He broke off to give emphasis to his last observation. After a moment he yawned and resumed. I suppose that the beginning of the second phase of my education was a ghastly dissatisfaction at being used in spite of myself for some inscrutable purpose of whose ultimate goal I was unaware if, indeed, there was an ultimate goal. It was a difficult choice. The schoolmistress seemed to be saying, "'We're going to play football and nothing but football. If you don't want to play football, you can't play at all.' What was I to do? The playtime was so short. You see, I felt that we were even denied what consolation there might have been in being a figment of a corporate man rising from his knees. Do you think that I leaped at this pessimism, grasped it as a sweetly smug superior thing, no more depressing, really, than, say, a grey autumn day before a fire? I don't think I did that. I was a great deal too warm for that, and too alive. For it seemed to me that there was no ultimate goal for man. Man was beginning a grotesque and bewildered fight with nature nature that by the divine and magnificent accident had brought us to where we could fly in her face. She had invented ways to rid the race of the inferior, and thus give the remainder strength to fill her higher, or, let us say, her more amusing, though still unconscious and accidental intentions. And, actuated by the highest gifts of the Enlightenment, we were seeking to circumvent her. In this republic I saw the black beginning to mingle with the white. In Europe there was taking place an economic catastrophe to save three or four diseased and wretchedly governed races 
from the one mastery that might organize them for material prosperity. We produce a Christ who can raise up the leper, and presently the breed of the leper is the salt of the earth. If anyone can find any lesson in that, let him stand forth." "'There's only one lesson to be learned from life anyway,' interrupted Gloria, not in contradiction, but in a sort of melancholy agreement. "'What's that?' demanded Maury sharply. "'That there's no lesson to be learned from life.' After a short silence, Maury said, "'Young Gloria, the beautiful and merciless lady, first looked at the world with the fundamental sophistication I have struggled to attain, that Anthony never will attain, that Dick will never fully understand." There was a disgusted groan from the apple-barrel. Anthony, grown accustomed to the dark, could see plainly the flash of Richard Caramel's yellow eye, and the look of resentment on his face as he cried, "'You're crazy! By your own statement, I should have attained some experience by trying!' "'Trying what?' cried Maury fiercely. "'Trying to pierce the darkness of political idealism with some wild, despairing urge toward truth? Sitting day after day, supine in a rigid chair, and infinitely removed from life, staring at the tip of a steeple through the trees, trying to separate, definitely and for all time, the knowable from the unknowable? Trying to take a piece of actuality and give it glamour from your own soul, to make for that inexpressive quality it possessed in life and lost in transit to paper or canvas? Struggling in a laboratory through weary years for one iota of relative truth in a mass of wheels or a test-tube? Have you?" Mari paused, and in his answer, when it came, there was a measure of weariness. A bitter overnote that lingered for a moment in those three minds before it floated up and off like a bubble bound for the moon. Not I," he said softly. I was born tired, but with the quality of mother-wit, the gift of women like Gloria. To that, for all my talking and listening, my waiting in vain for the eternal generality that seems to lie just beyond every argument and every speculation, to that I have added not one jot." In the distance, a deep sound that had been audible for some moments identified itself by a plaintive mooing, like that of a gigantic cow, and by the pearly spot of a headlight apparent half a mile away. It was a steam-driven train this time, rumbling and groaning, and as it tumbled by with a monstrous complaint, it sent a shower of sparks and cinders over the platform. Not one jot! Again Maury's voice dropped down to them as from a great height. What a feeble thing intelligence is, with its short steps, its waverings, its pacings back and forth, its disastrous retreats! Intelligence is a mere instrument of circumstances. There are people who say that intelligence must have built the universe. Why, intelligence never built a steam engine! Circumstances built a steam engine! Intelligence is little more than a short foot-rule by which we measure the infinite achievements of circumstances. I could quote you the philosophy of the hour, but for all we know, fifty years may see a complete reversal of this abnegation that's absorbing the intellectuals today, the triumph of Christ over Anatole France." He hesitated, and then added, "'But all I know, the tremendous importance of myself to me, 
and the necessity of acknowledging that importance to myself. These things, the wise and lovely Gloria, was born knowing these things, and the painful futility of trying to know anything else. Well, I started to tell you of my education, didn't I? But I learned nothing, you see, very little even about myself. And if I had, I should die with my lips shut and the guard on my fountain pen, as the wisest men have done since, oh, since the failure of a certain matter, a strange matter, by the way. It concerns some skeptics who thought they were far-sighted, just as you and I. Let me tell you about them by way of an evening prayer before you all drop off to sleep. Once upon a time all the men of mind and genius in the world became of one belief, that is to say, of no belief. But it wearied them to think that within a few years after their death many cults and systems and prognostications would be ascribed to them which they had never meditated nor intended. So they said to one another, Let's join together and make a great book that will last forever to mock the credulity of man. Let's persuade our more erotic poets to write about the delights of the flesh, and induce some of our robust journalists to contribute stories of famous amours. We'll include all the most preposterous old wives' tales now current. We'll choose the keenest satirist alive to compile a deity from all the deities worshipped by mankind, a deity who will be more magnificent than any of them, and yet so weakly human that he'll become a byword for laughter the world over. And we'll ascribe to him all sorts of jokes and vanities and rages, in which he'll be supposed to indulge for his own diversion, so that the people will read our book and ponder it, and there'll be no more nonsense in the world. Finally, let us take care that the book possesses all the virtues of style, so that it may last forever as a witness to our profound skepticism and our universal irony. So the men did, and they died. But the book lived always, so beautifully had it been written, and so astounding the quality of imagination with which these men of mind and genius had endowed it. They had neglected to give it a name, but after they were dead it became known as the Bible. When he concluded, there was no comment. Some damp languor sleeping on the air of night seemed to have bewitched them all. As I said, I started on the story of my education. But my highballs are dead and the night's almost over, and soon there'll be an awful jabbering going on everywhere, in the trees and the houses, and the two little stores over there behind the station, and there'll be a great running up and down upon the earth for a few hours. Well, he concluded with a laugh, thank God we four can all pass to our eternal rest knowing we've left the world a little better for having lived in it. A breeze sprang up, blowing with it faint wisps of life which flattened against the sky. Your remarks grow rambling and inconclusive, said Anthony sleepily. You expected one of those miracles of illumination by which you say your most brilliant and pregnant things in exactly the setting that should provoke the ideal symposium. Meanwhile, Gloria has shown her far-sighted detachment by falling asleep. I can tell that by the fact that she has managed to concentrate her entire weight upon my broken body." "'Have I bored you?' inquired Maury, looking down with some concern. "'No, you have disappointed us. 
You've shot a lot of arrows, but did you shoot any birds? I leave the birds to Dick, said Maury hurriedly. I speak erratically, in dissociated fragments. You can get no rise from me, muttered Dick. My mind is full of any number of material things. I want a warm bath too much to worry about the importance of my work or what proportion of us are pathetic figures. Dawn made itself felt in a gathering whiteness eastward over the river, and an intermittent cheeping in the nearby trees. "'Quarter to five, sighed Dick. "'Almost another hour to wait. Look, two gone.' He was pointing to Anthony, whose lids had sagged over his eyes. "'Sleep of the Patch family.' But in another five minutes, despite the amplifying cheeps and chirrups, his own head had fallen forward, knotted down twice, thrice. Only Maury Noble remained awake, seated upon the station roof, his eyes wide open and fixed with fatigued intensity upon the distant nucleus of morning. He was wondering at the unreality of ideas, at the fading radiance of existence, and at the little absorptions that were creeping avidly into his life like rats into a ruined house. He was sorry for no one now. On Monday morning there would be his business, and later there would be a girl of another class whose whole life he was. These were the things nearest his heart. In the strangeness of the brightening day it seemed presumptuous that, with this feeble, broken instrument of his mind, he had ever tried to think. There was the sun letting down great glowing masses of heat. There was life, active and snarling, moving about them like a fly-swarm, the dark pants of smoke from the engine, a crisp, all aboard, and a bell ringing. Confusedly, Maury saw eyes in the milk-train staring curiously up at him, heard Gloria and Anthony in quick controversy as to whether he should go to the city with her, then another clamor, and she was gone, and the three men, pale as ghosts were standing alone upon the platform, while a grimy coal-heaver went down the road on top of a motor-truck, caroling hoarsely at the summer morning. End of Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Three Book Two, Chapter Three, Part One of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE BROKEN LUTE It is seven-thirty of an August evening. The windows in the living-room of the grey house are wide open, patiently exchanging the tainted inner atmosphere of liquor and smoke for the fresh drowsiness of the late hot dusk. There are dying flower-scents upon the air, so thin, so fragile, as to hint already of a summer laid away in time but August is still proclaimed relentlessly by a thousand crickets around the side-porch, and by one who has broken into the house and concealed himself confidently behind a bookcase, from time to time shrieking of his cleverness and his indomitable will. The room itself is in messy disorder. On the table is a dish of fruit, which is real but appears artificial. Around it are grouped an ominous assortment of decanters, glasses, and heaped ashtrays, the latter still raising wavy smoke-ladders into the stale air, the effect on the whole needing but a skull to resemble that venerable chromo, 
once a fixture in every den, which presents the appendages to the life of pleasure with delightful and awe-inspiring sentiment. After a while, the sprightly solo of the super-cricket is interrupted rather than joined by a new sound, the melancholy wail of an erratically fingered flute. It is obvious that the musician is practicing rather than performing, for from time to time the gnarled strain breaks off, and, after an interval of indistinct mutterings, recommences. Just prior to the seventh fall start, a third sound contributes to the subdued discord. It is a taxi outside. A minute's silence, then the taxi again, its boisterous retreat almost obliterating the scrape of footsteps on the cinder walk. The doorbell shrieks alarmingly through the house. From the kitchen enters a small, fatigued Japanese, hastily buttoning a servant's coat of white duck. He opens the front screen door and admits a handsome young man of thirty, clad in the sort of well-intentioned clothes peculiar to those who serve mankind. To his whole personality clings a well-intentioned air. His glance about the room is compounded of curiosity and a determined optimism. When he looks at Tana, the entire burden of uplifting the godless Oriental is in his eyes. His name is Frederick E. Paramore. He was at Harvard with Anthony, where, because of the initials of their surnames, they were constantly placed next to each other in classes. A fragmentary acquaintance developed, but since that time they have never met. Nevertheless, Paramore enters the room with a certain air of arriving for the evening. Tana is answering a question. Tana, grinning with ingratiation. Gone to inn for dinner. Be back half hour. Gone since half past six. Paramore, regarding the glasses on the table. Have they company? Tana. Yes, company. Mr. Caramel, Mr. and Mrs. Barnes, Miss Kane all stay here. Paramore. I see. Kindly. They've been having a spree, I see. Tana. I no understand. Paramore. They've been having a fling. Tana. Yes, they have drink. Oh, many, many, many drink. Paramore. Receding delicately from the subject. Didn't I hear the sounds of music as I approached the house? Tana. With a spasmodic giggle. Yes, I pray. Paramore. One of the Japanese instruments. He is quite obviously a subscriber to the National Geographic magazine. Tana. I play flute, Japanese flute. Paramore. What song were you playing? One of your Japanese melodies? Tana, his brow undergoing preposterous contraction. I play train song, how you call railroad song, so called in my country. Like train, it go so, that mean whistle, train start, then go so. That mean train go. Go like that. Very nice song in my country. Children's song. Paramore. It sounded very nice. It is apparent at this point that only a gigantic effort at control restrains Tana from rushing upstairs for his postcards, including the six made in America. Tana. I fix highball for gentlemen. Paramore. No thanks. I don't use it. 
He smiles. Tana withdraws into the kitchen, leaving the intervening door slightly ajar. From the crevice there suddenly issues again the melody of the Japanese train song, this time not a practice, surely, but a performance, a lusty, spirited performance. The phone rings. Tana, absorbed in his harmonics, gives no heed, so Paramore takes up the receiver. Paramore. Hello? Yes. No, he's not here now, but he'll be back any moment. Butterworth? Hello, I didn't quite catch the name. Hello? 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 Huh. The phone obstinately refuses to yield up any more sound. Paramore replaces the receiver. At this point the taxi motif re-enters, wafting with it a second young man. He carries a suitcase and opens the front door without ringing the bell. Maury in the hall. Oh, Anthony! Yo-ho! He comes into the large room and sees Paramore. How do? Paramore, gazing at him with gathering intensity. Is this... is this Maury Noble? Maury. That's it. He advances, smiling and holding out his hand. How are you, old boy? Haven't seen you for years. He has vaguely associated the face with Harvard, but is not even positive about that. The name, if he ever knew it, he has long since forgotten. However, with a fine sensitiveness and an equally commendable charity, Paramore recognizes the fact and tactfully relieves the situation. Paramore. You've forgotten Fred Paramore? We were both in old Unc Robert's history class. Maury. No, I haven't, Unc. I mean, Fred. Fred was, I mean, Unc was a great old fellow, wasn't he? Paramore, nodding his head humorously several times. Great old character, great old character. Maury, after a short pause. Yes, he was. Where's Anthony? Paramore. The Japanese servant told me he was at some inn, having dinner, I suppose. Maury, looking at his watch. Gone long? Paramore. I guess so. The Japanese told me they'd be back shortly. Maury. Suppose we have a drink. Paramore. No, thanks. I don't use it. He smiles. Maury. Mind if I do? Yawning as he helps himself from a bottle. What have you been doing since you left college? Paramore. Oh, many things. I've led a very active life. Knocked about here and there. His tone implies anything from lion-stalking to organized crime. Maury. Oh, been over to Europe? Paramore. No, I haven't, unfortunately. Maury. I guess we'll all go over before long. Paramore. Do you really think so? Maury. Sure. Country's been fed on sensationalism for more than two years. Everybody's getting restless. Want to have some fun. Paramore. Then you don't believe any ideals are at stake? Maury. Nothing of much importance. People want excitement every so often. Paramore, intently. It's very interesting to hear you say that. Now, I was talking to a man who'd been over there. During the ensuing testament, left to be filled in by the reader with such phrases as saw with his own eyes, splendid spirit of France, and salvation of civilization. 
Maury sits with lowered eyelids, dispassionately bored. Maury, at the first available opportunity, by the way, do you happen to know there's a German agent in this very house? Paramore, smiling cautiously, are you serious? Maury, absolutely. Feel it my duty to warn you. Paramore, convinced, a governess? Maury, in a whisper, indicating the kitchen with his thumb. Tana! That's not his real name. I understand he constantly gets mail addressed to Lieutenant Emil Tannenbaum. Paramore, laughing with hearty tolerance, you were kidding me. Maury, I may be accusing him falsely. But you haven't told me what you've been doing. Paramore, for one thing, writing. Maury, fiction? Paramore, no, non-fiction. Maury, what's that? A sort of literature that's half fiction and half fact? Paramore, oh, I've confined myself to fact. I've been doing a good deal of social service work. Maury, oh. An immediate glow of suspicion leaps into his eyes. It is as though Paramore had announced himself as an amateur pickpocket. Paramore. At present I'm doing service work in Stamford. Only last week someone told me that Anthony Patch lived so near. They are interrupted by a clamor outside, unmistakable as that of two sexes in conversation and laughter. Then there entered the room in a body Anthony, Gloria, Richard Caramel, Muriel Kane, Richard Barnes, and Rodman Barnes, her husband. They surge about Maury, illogically replying, fine, to his general, hello. Anthony, meanwhile, approaches his other guest. Anthony. Well, I'll be darned. How are you? Mighty glad to see you. Paramore. It's glad to see you, Anthony. I'm stationed in Stamford, so I thought I'd run over. Roguishly. We have to work to beat the devil most of the time, so we're entitled to a few hours' vacation. In an agony of concentration, Anthony tries to recall the name. After a struggle of parturition, his memory gives up the fragment, Fred, around which he hastily builds the sentence, Glad you did, Fred. Meanwhile, the slight hush prefatory to an introduction has fallen upon the company. Mari, who could help, prefers to look on in malicious enjoyment. Anthony, in desperation, Ladies and gentlemen, this is... this is Fred. Muriel, with obliging levity, Hello, Fred. Richard Caramel and Paramore greet each other intimately by their first names, the latter recollecting that Dick was one of the men in his class who had never before troubled to speak to him. Dick fatuously imagines that Paramore is someone he has previously met in Anthony's house. The three young women go upstairs. Maury, in an undertone to Dick, haven't seen Muriel since Anthony's wedding. Dick, she's now in her prime. Her latest is, I'll say so. Anthony struggles for a while with Paramore and at length attempts to make the conversation general by asking everyone to have a drink. Maury, I've done pretty well on this bottle. I've gone from proof down to distillery. He indicates the words on the label. Anthony, to Paramore, never can tell when these two will turn up. 
said goodbye to them one afternoon at five, and darned if they didn't appear about two in the morning. A big hired touring car from New York drove up to the door, and out they stepped, drunk as lords, of course. In an ecstasy of consideration, Paramore regards the cover of a book which he holds in his hand. Mari and Dick exchange a glance. Dick, innocently, to Paramore, You work here in town? Paramore. No, I'm in the Laird Street settlement in Stamford. To Anthony. You have no idea of the amount of poverty in these small Connecticut towns. Italians and other immigrants. Catholics mostly, you know, so it's very hard to reach them. Anthony, politely. Lot of crime? Paramore. Not so much crime as ignorance and dirt. Maury. That's my theory. Immediate electrocution of all ignorant and dirty people. I'm all for the criminals. Give color to life. Trouble is, if you started to punish ignorance, you'd have to begin in the first families. Then you could take up the moving picture people, and finally, Congress and the clergy. Paramore, smiling uneasily. I was speaking of the more fundamental ignorance, of even our language. Maury, thoughtfully. I suppose it is rather hard. Can't even keep up with the new poetry. Paramore. It's only when the settlement work has gone on for months that one realizes how bad things are. As our secretary said to me, your fingernails never seem dirty until you wash your hands. Of course, we're already attracting much attention. Maury, rudely. As your secretary might say, if you stuff paper into a grate, it'll burn brightly for a moment." At this point Gloria, freshly tinted and lustful of admiration and entertainment, rejoins the party, followed by her two friends. For several moments the conversation becomes entirely fragmentary. Gloria calls Anthony aside. Gloria. Please don't drink much, Anthony. Anthony. Why? Gloria. Because you're so simple when you're drunk. Anthony. Good Lord! What's the matter now? Gloria. After a long pause, during which her eyes gaze coolly into his. Several things. In the first place, why do you insist on paying for everything? Both those men have more money than you. Anthony. Why, Gloria, they're my guests. Gloria. That's no reason why you should pay for a bottle of champagne Richard Barnes smashed. Dick tried to fix that second taxi bill, and you wouldn't let him. Anthony. Why, Gloria? Gloria. When we have to keep selling bonds to even pay our bills, it's time to cut down on excess generosities. Moreover, I wouldn't be quite so attentive to Rachel Barnes. Her husband doesn't like it any more than I do. Anthony. Why, Gloria! Gloria, mimicking him sharply. Why, Gloria! But that's what's happened a little too often this summer, with every pretty woman you meet. It's grown to be a sort of habit, and I'm not going to stand for it. If you can play around, I can too. Then, as an afterthought, By the way, this Fred person isn't a second Joe Hull, is he? Anthony. Heavens, no! He probably came up to get me to wheedle some money out of Grandfather for his flock. Gloria turns away from a very depressed Anthony and returns to her guests. 
By nine o'clock these can be divided into two classes, those who have been drinking consistently and those who have taken little or nothing. In the second group are the Barneses, Muriel, and Frederick E. Paramore. Muriel. I wish I could write. I get these ideas, but I never seem to be able to put them in words. Dick. As Goliath said, he understood how David felt, but he couldn't express himself. The remark was immediately adopted for a motto by the Philistines. Muriel. I don't get you. I must be getting stupid in my old age. Gloria, weaving unsteadily among the company like an exhilarated angel. If anyone's hungry, there's some French pastry on the dining-room table. Maury. Can't tolerate those Victorian designs it comes in. Muriel, violently amused. I'll say you're tight, Maury. Her bosom is still a pavement that she offers to the hoofs of many passing stallions, hoping that their iron shoes may strike even a spark of romance in the darkness. Messieurs Barnes and Paramore have been engaged in conversation upon some wholesome subject, a subject so wholesome that Mr. Barnes has been trying for several moments to creep into the more tainted air around the central lounge. Whether Paramore is lingering in the grey house out of politeness or curiosity, or in order at some future time to make a sociological report on the decadence of American life, is problematical. Maury. Fred, I imagined you were very broad-minded. Paramore. I am. Muriel. Me too. I believe one religion's as good as another in everything. Paramore. There's some good in all religions. Muriel. I'm a Catholic, but, as I always say, I'm not working at it. Paramore, with a tremendous burst of tolerance. The Catholic religion is a very, a very powerful religion. Maury. Well, such a broad-minded man should consider the raised plane of sensation and the stimulated optimism contained in this cocktail. Paramore taking the drink rather defiantly. Thanks. I'll try one. Maury. One? Outrageous! Here we have a class of 1910 reunion, and you refuse to be even a little pickled. Come on! Here's a health to King Charles! Here's a health to King Charles! Bring the bowl that you boast! Paramore joins in with a hearty voice. Maury. Fill the cup, Frederick. You know, everything's subordinated to nature's purposes with us, and her purpose with you is to make you a rip-roaring tippler. Paramore. If a fellow can drink like a gentleman. Maury. What is a gentleman, anyway? Anthony. A man who never has pins under his coat lapel. Maury. Nonsense! A man's social rank is determined by the amount of bread he eats in a sandwich. Dick. He's a man who prefers the first edition of a book to the last edition of a newspaper. Rachel. A man who never gives an impersonation of a dope fiend. Maury. An American who can fool an English butler into thinking he's one. Muriel. A man who comes from a good family and went to Yale or Harvard or Princeton and has money and dances well and all that. Maury. At last, the perfect definition. 
Cardinal Newman's now a back number. Paramore. I think we ought to look on the question more broad-mindedly. Was it Abraham Lincoln who said that a gentleman is one who never inflicts pain? Maury. It's attributed, I believe, to General Ludendorff. Paramore. Surely you're joking. Maury. Have another drink. Paramore. I oughtn't to. Lowering his voice for Maury's ear alone. What were I to tell you this is the third drink I've ever taken in my life? Dick starts the phonograph, which provokes Muriel to rise and sway from side to side, her elbows against her ribs, her forearms perpendicular to her body and out like fins. Muriel. Oh, let's take up the rugs and dance! This suggestion is received by Anthony and Gloria with interior groans and sickly smiles of acquiescence. Muriel. Come on, you lazybones! Get up and move the furniture back! Dick. Wait till I finish my drink. Maury, intent on his purpose toward Paramore. I'll tell you what. Let's each fill one glass, drink it off, and then we'll dance. A wave of protest which breaks against the rock of Maury's insistence. Muriel. My head is simply going round now. Rachel, in an undertone to Anthony. Did Gloria tell you to stay away from me? Anthony, confused. Why, certainly not. Of course not. Rachel smiles at him inscrutably. Two years have given her a sort of hard, well-groomed beauty. Maury, holding up his glass. Here's to the defeat of democracy and the fall of Christianity. Muriel. Now, really! She flashes a mock reproachful glance at Maury and then drinks. They all drink with varying degrees of difficulty. Muriel. Clear the floor! It seems inevitable that this process is to be gone through, so Anthony and Gloria join in the great moving of tables, potting of chairs, rolling of carpets, and breaking of lamps. When the furniture has been stacked in ugly masses at the sides, there appears a space about eight feet square. Muriel. Oh, let's have music! Maury. Tana will render the love-song of an eye, ear, nose, and throat specialist. Amid some confusion due to the fact that Tana has retired for the night, preparations are made for the performance. The pajama Japanese, flute in hand, is wrapped in a comforter and placed in a chair atop one of the tables, where he makes a ludicrous and grotesque spectacle. Paramore is perceptibly drunk, and so enraptured with the notion that he increases the effect by simulating funny paper staggers and even venturing on an occasional hiccough. Paramore to Gloria. Want to dance with me? Gloria. No, sir. Want to do the swan dance. Can you do it? Paramore. Sure, do them all. Gloria. All right. You start from that side of the room, and I'll start from this. Muriel. Let's go! Then Bedlam creeps screaming out of the bottles. Tana plunges into the recondite mazes of the train song, the plaintive tootle-toot-toot blending its melancholy cadences with the poor butterfly tink-a-tink by the blossoms waiting of the phonograph. Muriel is too weak with laughter to do more than cling desperately to Barnes, 
who, dancing with the ominous rigidity of an army officer, tramps without humor around the small space. Anthony is trying to hear Rachel's whisper, without attracting Gloria's attention. But the grotesque, the unbelievable, the histrionic incident is about to occur, one of those incidents in which life seems set upon the passionate imitation of the lowest forms of literature. Paramore has been trying to emulate Gloria, and as the commotion reaches its height, he begins to spin round and round, more and more dizzily. He staggers, recovers, staggers again, and then falls in the direction of the hall, almost into the arms of old Adam Patch, whose approach has been rendered inaudible by the pandemonium in the room. Adam Patch is very white. He leans upon a stick. The man with him is Edward Shuttleworth and it is he who seizes Paramore by the shoulder and deflects the course of his fall away from the venerable philanthropist. The time required for quiet to descend upon the room like a monstrous pall may be estimated at two minutes, though for a short period after that the phonograph gags and the notes of the Japanese train song dribble from the end of Tana's flute. Of the nine people, only Barnes, Paramore, and Tana are unaware of the latecomer's identity. Of the nine, not one is aware that Adam Patch has that morning made a contribution of fifty thousand dollars to the cause of national prohibition. It is given to Paramore to break the gathering silence. The high tide of his life's depravity is reached in this incredible remark. Paramore, crawling rapidly toward the kitchen on his hands and knees. I'm not a guest here. I work here. Again silence falls, so deep now, so weighted with intolerably contagious apprehension, that Rachel gives a nervous little giggle, and Dick finds himself telling over and over a line from Swinburne, grotesquely appropriate to the scene, One gaunt bleak blossom of scentless breath. Out of the hush the voice of Anthony, sober and strained, saying something to Adam Patch. Then this too dies away. Shuttleworth, passionately. Your grandfather thought he would motor over to see your house. I phoned from Rye and left a message. A series of little gasps, emanating apparently from nowhere, from no one, fell into the next pause. Anthony is the color of chalk. Gloria's lips are parted and her level gaze at the old man is tense and frightened. There is not one smile in the room. Not one? or does Cross Patch's drawn mouth tremble slightly open, to expose the even rows of his thin teeth? He speaks five mild and simple words. Adam Patch We'll go back now, Shuttleworth. And that is all. He turns, and assisted by his cane, goes out through the hall, through the front door, and with hellish portentousness his uncertain footsteps crunch on the gravel path under the August moon. Retrospect In this extremity they were like two goldfish in a bowl from which all the water had been drawn. They could not even swim across to each other. Gloria would be twenty-six in May. There was nothing, she had said, that she wanted except to be young and beautiful for a long time, to be gay and happy, and to have money and love. She wanted what most women want, but she wanted it much more fiercely and passionately. 
She had been married over two years. At first there had been days of serene understanding, rising to ecstasies of proprietorship and pride. Alternating with these periods had occurred sporadic hates, enduring a short hour, and forgetfulnesses lasting no longer than an afternoon. That had been for half a year. Then the serenity, the content, had become less jubilant, had become gray. Very rarely, with the spur of jealousy or forced separation, the ancient ecstasies returned, the apparent communion of soul and soul, the emotional excitement. It was possible for her to hate Anthony for as much as a full day, to be carelessly incensed at him for as long as a week. Recrimination had displaced affection as an indulgence, almost as an entertainment, and there were nights when they would go to sleep trying to remember who was angry and who should be reserved next morning. And as the second year waned there had entered two new elements. Gloria realized that Anthony had become capable of utter indifference toward her, a temporary indifference, more than half lethargic but one from which she could no longer stir him by a whispered word or a certain intimate smile. There were days when her caresses affected him as a sort of suffocation. She was conscious of these things, she never entirely admitted them to herself. It was only recently that she perceived that in spite of her adoration of him, her jealousy, her servitude, her pride, she fundamentally despised him and her contempt blended indistinguishably with her other emotions. All this was her love, the vital and feminine illusion that had directed itself toward him one April night many months before. On Anthony's part she was, in spite of these qualifications, his sole preoccupation. Had he lost her he would have been a broken man, wretchedly and sentimentally absorbed in her memory for the remainder of life. He seldom took pleasure in an entire day spent alone with her, except on occasions he preferred to have a third person with them. There were times when he felt that if he were not left absolutely alone he would go mad. There were a few times when he definitely hated her. In his cups he was capable of short attractions toward other women, the hitherto suppressed outcroppings of an experimental temperament. That spring, that summer, they had speculated upon future happiness, how they were to travel from summerland to summerland, returning eventually to a gorgeous estate and possible idyllic children, then entering diplomacy or politics, to accomplish for a while beautiful and important things, until finally, as a white-haired, beautifully silkily white-haired couple, they were to loll about in serene glory, worshipped by the bourgeoisie of the land. These times were to begin when we get our money. It was on such dreams, rather than on any satisfaction with their increasingly irregular, increasingly dissipated life, that their hope rested. On grey mornings, when the jests of the night before had shrunk to ribaldries without wit or dignity, they could, after a fashion, bring out this batch of common hopes and count them over, then smile at each other and repeat, by way of clinching the matter, the terse yet sincere Nietzscheanism of Gloria's defiant, I don't care. Things had been slipping perceptibly. There was the money question, increasingly annoying, increasingly ominous. 
there was the realization that liquor had become a practical necessity to their amusement. Not an uncommon phenomenon in the British aristocracy of a hundred years ago. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But a somewhat alarming one in a civilization steadily becoming more temperate and more circumspect. Moreover, both of them seemed vaguely weaker in fiber not so much in what they did as in their subtle reactions to the civilization about them. In Gloria had been born something that she had hitherto never needed, the skeleton, incomplete but nevertheless unmistakable of her ancient abhorrence, a conscience. This admission to herself was coincidental with the slow decline of her physical courage. Then, on the August morning after Adam Patch's unexpected call, they awoke, nauseated and tired, dispirited with life, capable only of one pervasive emotion—fear. End of Book Two, Chapter Three, Part One